Welcome to Facing Burke, both on trails and in life. I'm your host, Tara Jordan. Now, before you proceed with listening to this podcast, I just want to warn you there is sensitive material discussed in the latter half of the podcast. So if you have young ears around, please listen to it first before you play it in front of them. Thank you so much. My special guest today is Jack Kitching, and he just told me something fascinating about his last name. First of all, Jack, where are you from? Because you ain't from around here. Uh, I'm originally born from uh, Greenville, Tennessee, (laughs) born and raised. Uh, I'm I'm originally from uh, England. And uh, as I was saying to this fine young lady a second ago, uh, my last name, Kiching, which is K-I-T-C-H-I-N-G, comes from what your family did at the time. So uh, years ago, my family would have been masters of the kitchen. So it's master of the kitchen. So uh, that was kind of the nature of your last name. Like Smith was traditionally a blacksmith. Oh. And it kind of goes So are you a master of the kitchen? I am very good in the kitchen, apparently. Ah, gotcha. I was born, I was raised being able to cook, clean, and and be self-sufficient, which I think is a, which is an incredibly important asset that every man, woman, and child should be able to do. That's true. I need to get better at mastering the kitchen. Kitchen. But Nash, my son, he, he likes to cook and i need to show him more how to cook but you should you, <laughs> but, should you should spend more time getting him to cook and then you don't have to that that's that's true i just feel like he's gonna get hurt because he's young but he's not that young he's 11 so he's fine he's gonna be a master of the kitchen so we'll have to change his last name <laughs> to, to, to nash kitchen <laughs> so what brought you to the united states and how long have you been here I've been here since um, 2013. My lovely wifey is uh, originally from New Jersey, and which is the armpit of America. Uh, <laughs> sorry if you're from New Jersey, but my uh, my wife is originally from there. My wifey met me when she was studying abroad uh, for her uh, for her college. She went to Marist in uh, upstate New York, and I was at that time I was in the household cavalry, so the gentleman that ride the horses behind the queen. I did that for a, um, I did that for for quite a few years, and um, so my chat-up line to my lovely wife was, "I was Queen Elizabeth II's personal bodyguard and ceremonial duties," which is a hundred percent accurate, and what my job was because I was, I'm a, bit, I'm a little bit bigger, so I was always next to the golden carriage, or I was in a position that if somebody's going to shoot, it's gonna, I'm going to get shot. So it's nature of the beast. So she fell in love with you because you were a bodyguard to the queen. Exactly. Like, who wouldn't at that point? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) and I I do want to talk more about that because I do think that's very fascinating. (laughs) But so you came to the United States after you met her. Yes. So we we lived together in England for quite a few years. Kind of skipped forwards a little bit. um, And then we came over here after I got out of the army. And we lived in New York, New Jersey for... um, for about three years and then we randomly came down to North Carolina so we lived just outside Asheville in a town called Marshall um and we came down here randomly on a labor Labor day weekend just to check it out three weeks later we moved uh, myself my wife and two dogs with our minivan with a u-haul trailer full of all our stuff all the way down to North Carolina and we moved into a house that we rented because you fell in love with it during Labor Day. It was phenomenal. Like we, when we first came down here, we had a minivan with a rooftop tent, and we we didn't book any hotels, we didn't book anywhere, and we slept above the tourist stadium, 
um, in the there's like a grassy field, and we slept up there. And I, I'm not making any of this up. <laughs> and we we um, we didn't have any showers, so I went down to the French Broad River with a bar of soap, and I was floating in the water oh. with a bar of soap washing because I didn't know the uh, the how. Um, how wonderful the French Broad River was at that point in my uh, travels, <laughs> but that's that's kind of what we did, and we just bummed around, and we just we went we down for like three or four days. I think it was three days. And so this wasn't an official camping site. You just pulled over and said, "Yeah, we had a roof. This looks to, good." <laughs> yeah, this, 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 so we we found this. We found a like we so we would travel around all over the place, and we would have this pop up tent on top of our minivan. And we'd sleep in Walmart car parks all the time. You find a spot at the back, pop it up. Me and Kayla would go up there. The two two dogs would go up there, and we'd just go to sleep. And it, you put some earplugs in, and, and sleeping in Walmart car parks was fantastic because you go somewhere to the bathroom, you can brush your teeth there, you get food and breakfast, and then load up and go the next day. It was That's fantastic. true. That's how we used we used to cruise around. So you said this Asheville place is great. We're going to move here. Phenomenal. And, and we you came did. Hundred percent. And we moved down three weeks later, and it was it was just best decision we ever did and it was you know at this point at that point of our lives we didn't have any children um and it was just it was me and Kayla and we came down here and there was you know we're going to loads of wonderful restaurants all the time and we we rode bikes all the time and I just go and crank out stupid distances on my bike and it was just it was wonderful now were you a did you enjoy running at this point or you just no. enjoyed okay no. <laughs> no running for you no. you just were on your bike I, as much as possible solely by occasionally me and Kayla would go for hikes but I was I was Road, I, I, when I first came down, I had two bikes. I had a road bike and I had a, a fixed bike, kind of like a, a track bike. It's like a, um, a bike with no brakes um, for like, that you ride on the velodrome. <laughs> that sounds safe. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very safe. Um, but like a bike that you'd ride on the velodrome. Uh, and I used to go and do races. Like um, It's a race called Red Hook Crit, which is a criterium race. So it's like a circuit and you ride bikes without any brakes. So it's kind of like riding a spinning bike. You ride it on the roads with no brakes. And around and around and around. And around and around and around. But my favorite thing I used to do is like, I used to like going up to, riding up to from, we used to live down the end of Reams Creek, if you know where that is, go up Ox Creek and all the way up to Mount Mitchell or yes. Craggy Gardens on my on my track bike and go ride up it and come back down again. Wait, you would come back down on that with no brakes? Mm -hmm. All the time. You just have to, it's, oh my God. it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> But you, you, you kind of terrifying. Just, just a little bit. I, 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 I stopped doing it after maybe like a year and a half, two years, because I had a couple of close calls. Um, but I would have to. You, you have to like kind of lock your knee on the top tube, and slow the pedal as it's coming back up and apply pressure to it. But if you really need to stop because you're about to go around the corner too fast, you have to lock your knee on the top tube and lock your legs, and it stop. It locks up the back tire, and you skid around corners. It's terrifying. My my wife is very very glad that I've stopped doing that now. Um, I agree with your wife. Yeah, that I, I think I, I think that she's probably a lot more intelligent than I was at that time, <laughs> and probably still is very much more. Intelligent was this than before I. kids or this is before? kids. Okay, see, kids change things too. <laughs> I I will say that I settled down tremendously after having kids. And you have two boys. I have two boys. I have Alfie and Archie. Um, Alfie is five, nearly six, and Archie is four. He just turned four. Okay. And they are just wide open. Like, I look at Archie and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I, I know what trouble I'm in for. And it's all coming. They're just like you. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so, it's, Alfie's a lot more sensitive and more like his mama. Yes. Uh, Archie is like a bulldog and doesn't give a flying monkeys about anybody. It, it, <laughs> like, he just comes charging into a room and he just screams at everybody and does not care for one second. So when you came to the United States, yes. had you ever been here before? 
Yes. So because my wife's originally from New Jersey, we had visited several times before. So we'd gone to, we'd come across for extended periods of time, like three or four weeks at a time or something like that. And then when I was a kid, I'd gone to Florida and I'd also gone to L.A., um, with your family? With, with my family at okay. the time. And then when me and Kayla came across, we'd, we'd come across, you know, she, me and her lived together in England for about four years. And we must have traveled over a few times and gone to like um, the Outer Banks of um, North Carolina and, and New York and all over the place. Um, but after I got out of the army, we decided to come across. Did, was, I mean, just curious, mm-hmm. your idea of the United States? Yes. Anything that, when you came here, was totally different from what you expected, or was it everything you did expect? Everybody was. I thought everybody was going to be fat. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, it's it, it's such a cliche, but it's and I don't mean to be like non PC, but it's like it's such a cliche of in in um, in um, in England that that everybody eats cheeseburgers and fast food all the time, or you've got like uh, I suppose I think you refer to it as like the Valley Girls is like oh, like oh my gosh, like. <laughs> That, that like, is, yeah. you, you've got like, <laughs> you've got people that enjoy the food and then you've got Valley girls, the Valley girls. And then <laughs> and that's like, it. There's no in between. <laughs> there's no in between. And then we moved across and we went into, um, New York and it was, I was like, oh, this, this accent's very abrasive. It's very abrasive. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's the New York the, accent. Very. Um, and then when we, we came down from. New York to North Carolina, it was, and before that I'd lived in London for eight years. So I'd always lived, I lived in big cities. Um, it was the mentality of how much slower pace it was down here. And I was used to just like running around everywhere and going through like grocery stores and just like running at full speed because that's what everybody did up there. And it was like, oh, it's the South. I had to slow down because everybody would speak right. much, much slower and, and, and not, nobody would understand a word I said ever so i had to really slow i had to really slow down when we moved over here i moved down here should i say um and just the mentality of the way that people drove everything was everything was slower it was just slower and not aggressive and it was like oh ah and so it took a while for me to get rid of all those bad habits well (laughs) i think when i first met you i had a hard time understanding what you were saying. <laughs> I, I mean, understandably. And maybe some people that are listening to this are going to have a hard time too, but. I suspect they probably will. But, you, but you'll but you get used to it the, the more we talk. It, it'll, it'll be fine. By the end of it, you'll be, you'll be singing, you'll be speaking correctly and you'll be using the correct terminology for, <laughs> for saying Samatu correctly. That's, that's true. So a few episodes ago on the podcast, mm-hmm. I interviewed Evan and Laura. Yes. And Evan talked about, um, accountability because he became part of this group that started meeting in actually your house. He didn't mention your name, but you are the guy that has the house that started this group. And there's been quite a few people that have joined these workouts and have not only physically improved, but mentally improved just because they are with people that are encouraging them and they've seen a difference in how they feel. So how did that even get started? Um, Tell me the beginning of that. So the beginning of it, which Evan may have left this small piece of information out was, is um, I'd met his lovely wifey beforehand at the park and it, it was a church event and I'd gone there and he came out of nowhere and he tapped me on the shoulder and goes, Hey, I'm Lara's Lara's husband. And I turned around and without even skipping a beat and go, 
geez, you punched up, didn't you? <laughs> and I and I immediately start I immediately start making fun of him and just like very much my nature is in in a loving manner I, I make fun of everybody and it, like there's nobody that's exempt me making fun of them. But Evan immediately started calling fat and me and him just like me and him just got on like a house on fire. And it was just, you know, and then through for for over a period of time when we because at this point I hadn't really come to church and I just started like coming to, I suppose I just started to like put my tip my dough into the idea of coming to church. And me and um me and Evan just like bumped into each other at church and so on and so forth. And eventually I was like, you should come work out sometime. And after maybe a couple of months of me like making fun of him and teasing him he eventually came and then that's kind of where it started and then and it was just you and me at that that point and then that, evan right. joined you okay me and evan and then eventually my other good friend sullivan joined and then there was a young lady that came for a little bit and then she who worked for us and then she went off and did her own thing um but it was it was three it was, it was essentially the core group was me sullivan and evan and then somebody would like sullivan would invite a friend or evan would invite a friend and we just start to build up. And I think for me, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, but I wanted people to have a different relationship with fitness than I had. And I wanted them to do it because they, they enjoyed it and they saw results and they made genuine changes in their life. But I think the accountability, which, which I believe you call the podcast, is, is, it was, was fantastic because we'd all text each other. And if somebody wasn't there, it'd be like, well, where are you? Like, just harp on them. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on. It's it's early, and we would all and we'd always meet really early. So we'd meet at five thirty in the morning, and it was just because you know both both those fine uh, those fine gents, myself, were just busy. So we, we we made the conscious decision to like meet at five thirty in the morning. So both of the boys were about at that point maybe anywhere between about thirty minutes away from the house or so, give or take. So we'd always meet up. We'd work out for thirty to forty minutes, something like that. Stretch off, hang out for a little for a couple minutes more. Everybody would go home, get home before their kids were awake, shower and change, and then go off to work, and they'd restart their workout. And I think that that was, that's kind of how it started. And eventually, there's sometimes there's 10, 12 of us in the basement, and it's just it's just so much fun. And it's we try and like it's like a really fun environment that we work really really hard, but it's but it's in a manner that's always different. And and I, and it's one of the things I really work on to make sure that. The things that the things that we're doing is 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 it's interesting. It's not just the same thing. It's there's there's days that we do much more cardio, and then there's other days that we do we lift more weights, and just try and keep it as interesting as possible. And I suppose I wouldn't call it CrossFit. I'd say it's more like HIT training and more um, high intensity with like uh, like long long longer bursts of um, effort with short with very very short recovery, and then going straight back into it again. And that's kind of the way that through years of being in the army and training and so on and so forth, I find that that works, that works best in my opinion. But Variety is great. The variety is great. So you meet every day or just on certain days? Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we'll meet at 5.30. And then on Tuesdays, um, we'll, there's a bunch of us that meet down on the river and we go for a run. And the same thing started off with, I think it was me and Sullivan started texting each other, going backwards and forwards. And it's like, hey, let's go for a run. I think the first time we ever, and I think he was, if I remember right, I think he was nervous about coming for a run with me because I think it he was, he's like, oh, you're going to be so much faster than me. I was like, fine. I wear my body armor. So I wore like weighted plates and then me, and him, <laughs> me and him went for a run. And the moment that I started running, I was like, oh, this is hard. <laughs> I was like, we're going faster than I thought we were going to go. I was like, and I was just dying for it. But, it. but it was brilliant. And we just, and then, and then it was like, well, we've started now. Let's, let's keep trucking. 
And then eventually we, we kept on going. And it, it was the same thing. It was like our relationship, like the relationship of our fitness was was a positive thing. And, it, and then we started like harping on Evan and then Evan came across and as from, he said in the previous podcast, he's he's run marathons now. And it just started off with, hey, come on, let's hang let's out. Let's go for a run. Let's right. go for a run. Let's, and make it a fun thing that, you know, we're, we're always talking about different things. And it's, and, it, and I think for me, I much, I much prefer running in, in a group than on my own. Mm-hmm. And it's, we'll talk about, we'll talk about all sorts from, from churchy stuff to, to how our children are and how they're growing and similarities between our kids and, and just life in general. And I think it, it makes it really interesting. Like this morning we ran, we met at 5.30 and we busted out nearly, I think we nearly did five miles. Evan did 10 miles. So he ran a couple miles before we got wow. there. But it's just, it, I think it's it's really fun and, it, and, it's, and it's, it's the progression of how we're, I suppose it's the progression of how we are growing and everybody just is getting fitter and fitter. And it's just really nice to be able to see people have a really positive uh, relationship with fitness. Right, instead of seeing it as a, a dread or yeah, something that 100%. they have to do, which... Like you talked about it on one of, I think it was, you, I want to say first it was your, one. your first one, you said that you h- always hated running because you had to do it. Correct. And it's the same as like, when I first got out of the army, I was like, I would never run again. It's the stupidest thing in the entire world. And I had a very like negative attitude towards running. And that's why I went cycling. And I, I didn't run after the army for maybe four or five years, something like that. So how many people come to this group now? I mean, what has it grown to? Um, so it, 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 it varies, but most of the time it's probably, there's, there's at least eight, eight of us that meet up. Um, and then people are obviously go away over work and whatnot and come back in, but it, it'll go between eight and 12. Most of the time, eight and 10, like a good vast majority of the time. And we'll do, like we'll do races every so often, which makes it really fun. So we'll break into two groups and we'll go, okay, so we've got we've got a piece of equipment down there called the skier. And then you've got an airdyne, which is kind of bike with a giant fan on the front. And then um, we've got a bunch of, uh, we've got a rack for bench press and so on and so forth. And we'll go, okay, the, the race is two teams. First team, are you going to start on the skier? And then the second team, you're going to start on the airdyne. You have to get... Uh, 200, ca- 200 calories burnt on the airdyne and the skier you have to do um, uh, 3,000 meters or whatever it may be and then we're going to see whose team wins the team that loses gets 20 burpees at the end something like that <laughs> that just, is your punishment that's your punishment <laughs> right. and, it, and it's normally and, and vast majority of the time whoever wins normally just jump in with the guys as well and it's just like a, it's like a fun thing it's not like oh you lost it's just like come on let's let's like incentivize this let, let's get after this and you know and there's other times that we'll go like um monday for instance i was like right the the distance we're going to egg on the skier is six thousand seven hundred and fifty meters we as a team are going to try and conquer that as hard as we can and there's another good guy called heath which just went out and crushed it on there and it's just it's it's well, and then while that's going on, everybody else is doing another. Everybody else is doing a workout, and it's like one person will go on there, work their butt, their uh, their butt off, then they'll jump off, and somebody else will jump on there. And it's 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 just a, it makes it really fun, and it's like everybody's it's like a really positive environment that everybody's encouraging each other, and it's like come on, let's go and get after this. And yeah, we make yeah we make fun of each other the whole time, but it's like in a really like in a really fun like in a really fun manner, and it's it's just. I think like 
looking at people like Heath, for instance, Heath was a, I love Heath. I think he's fantastic, but he was he was a very very big boy when he first start when he when he started, and he's just dropped so much weight. And when you speak to him, he's like, I feel better. I sleep better. I just, I just feel overall so much more so much sharper. The same as Evan. Evan will say the same thing. And it and it's and it's really it's really refreshing to know the time and the effort of crafting these workouts that these guys are just benefiting so much in not just in terms of a physical ability and how they, they look but how that they feel in, they in their life and it's <laughs> keeps going back to the thing i'm saying it's a, it's a it's a positive relationship with fitness and i very much had a not positive relationship with fitness and it it, it was it was a it's really refreshing to see that and it's like a genuine all these boys are all and and there's a lovely young lady called hannah who comes along as well who are just all about it and they first started and like oh gosh this is gonna be horrific and it started the first couple like week or two of it being really hard and then them just going oh i'm all about it like hannah was like i will never come ever come ever this is a silly thing I, i'm not that kind of person and now she comes and she goes ah i love it <laughs> <laughs> now she can't help but come yeah and, and it and it's but it's because i think people are terrified it's gonna be this really awful thing and then they do it and then they're like oh Oh, it isn't that bad. Like I, you know, I, I'm I'm assuming it's the same thing with ultra 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 distances. Like I've never, I've run some longer distances, especially with when I was in the army. But it's it's such a community, and it seems like such a fun community from from an outsider looking in. It seems very much like a, of a fun community of it's the encouragement. It's trying and people are well done. That's fantastic. You're doing hellbender or you're doing this or that. And it's like the distances and the elevation and everything that you guys do is just, it seems phenomenal thing. And I think that that's the positive thing I really like about an outsider looking in on that sport. I think the trail community in general is, and it's, it's not just trail running, but you know, that is the one I'm the most familiar with. And that is the one where I have felt I've made so many friends, and you're right. You're constantly encouraging each other, and you're always doing something different. It's a different adventure every time you go out on the trail. And so, you know, I'm not one for variety in terms of I just run and I should do more. But at the same time, I'm I'm getting a lot of variety by doing the trails. And you know, races are not. It's it's not about the competition. It's about the accomplishment. And I love that also about. Not not just doing ultras, but any sort of um, races. I get, that. I get that. And and I, I of course of course love it. Yeah. And it's the people that I've surrounded myself with that have been the most encouraging in yeah. me accomplishing these crazy goals that I, I've that I I've see, had. I can see that. It's and their I, fault. <laughs> it's it's their fault. It's and, you know and it, and it's I think it's, but it is just it's genuinely really refreshing to see that. And I think especially in the society where everybody can be a bit grumpy at times with this, that, and the other, it's a, it's refreshing to have something that is just genuine. Everybody loves each other, and everybody just it's it's real positive. And it doesn't matter where you fall in the world of politics or this, that, and the other. It's like, hey, we're all going to get together and we're going to do this really cool thing. Right. And I think that's the cool thing that I really like. From and I can see it from the outside in. Not and you know I don't think I'll ever be an ultra runner because I'm a bit fat for that. But the hush. hush. Well, I'm a bit. I'm a bit bigger. I'm probably twice your size. But it's the, you're taller for sure. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm two twenty five. I'm, I'm definitely twice your size, <laughs> or maybe at least a hundred pounds. But it's you. It, it's it's just a really. It's a, it seems like a really positive thing, and I think that that's hats off to the all the guys and girls that have over years 
made that community what it is. And I think that's fantastic. So you said that you had a bad relationship with fitness before. Is Does that come from the military? And talk, talk about your military journey. I mean, okay. I, I know really nothing about what it's like over in England mm-hmm. versus here. Okay. And how does that compare? So, so how did you get started? With no, that? no, I understand. Um, so when I first... So essentially, my my journey of my relationship with fitness and so on and so forth was when I first joined the army, I went, I joined and I went super fit. And I was in there, I was like, because my dad was in the army and he was like, you need to get really fit to, to go there. And, you know, the standard test was two minutes push-ups, two minutes sit-ups, uh, and then you have to do a mile and a half run. In and a then, certain time? In a certain time. Okay. Um, which was, you have to do it under 10 and a half minutes. And I could do it in roughly at that time in about seven minutes, 40 seconds or so. And it was, you know, relatively, it's pretty flat course, but it was relatively quick. And then, so I went there with that kind of fitness and most people were doing it in like nine minutes, 9.30. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. Okay. And, I, and I, I like all the fitness stuff I'd gone and my dad had prepped me so much that you have to be fit, you have to be strong, you have to be like kicking butt. So I went there and I just crushed it. Was and your I, dad in the military? My, dad's, my dad was in the military. He left as a lieutenant colonel. And he he'd been in for thirty years. So I had my dad. So that was a big motivator. Yeah, and, and dad's like, "Don't be a pansy, go and crush it." Right. <laughs> so and it was he was always teasing me. So well, I could do it at this pace. I was like, "All right, I'll do it that fast. I'll go faster." <laughs> so that was that was always like a little bit of like fun between my, me and my father. Um, and then from there, I went and joined. Eventually, joined the um, went through my basic training, and then uh, which is three months long. It goes from weapon systems to to basic infantry skills and so on and so forth. And then from there, when you go to your specialist training, which mine was, um, I joined the Household Cavalry, which is what, a- What's that called? Uh, the Household Cavalry. Household so Cavalry. Cavalry. So it's the okay. oldest regiment in the British Army. It was devised in 1664 as a body of men that were devised to come across to protect King Charles I from exile to bring him back to England. So we're the only regiment that are allowed to have the swords, swords drawn in the presence of the Queen, or now King, um, because we were we were a body of men that were had a higher higher levels of trust for who we were, we wasn't going to turn on the on the on the monarchy uh, because we were loyal to them. And there was two parts of the regiment: you had the lifeguards, which I was in, which were the red tunics who ride the horses behind the queen, and then you have the uh, the blues and royals, which were really parliamentarian. So like Oliver Cromwell. Um, and they, they were two central regiments that got joined together and came under the umbrella of the household cavalry. Um, so I did that. So when I first joined, I didn't know how to ride a horse, which is a, it's a mounted <laughs> regiment, which I know it's, it seems absolutely bonkers. But they actually prefer if you don't know how to ride a horse. So when you when you first get there, um, you're, you're do, you'll learn how to clean kit and so on and so forth. And then they will teach you how to ride horses. And for the first, I think it's a... I want to say it's ten. Week, I want to say it's a ten-week course, um, and you you start bareback. So for mm. the first month, you don't ride with a saddle, and it's it's all from the inside of your legs. So we in England, we obviously we ride English. So it's a it's, it's two-handed. So if you want to go left, you apply pressure with your right leg, and you'll take. So you, you pull the reins in with your left hand and give with your right. So that will give the horse you go to get the horse to go to your left and go to your right, and and that's that's the way that the um, that's the way that you just ride in England, well, within the within the regiment. So you did that for four weeks or so, and then they eventually give you a saddle, but no stirrups. And eventually they give you stirrups, which is just 
the, the nicest thing you've ever felt in your entire life. <laughs> to have stirrups. Oh, it's just like heaven. It's, it's like after six weeks of not riding with any stirrups and you get to, and you're like, oh. What relief. <laughs> it's it's just like the saddle, like, and every everybody has it. And it's just, it's it, it's the, the saddle sores that you have is just horrific. And it's so bad and it just hurts because you're just, it's not very comfortable. I mean, how, how many hours a day would you ride? Um, about three hours a day, every day. Um, and you did that and you'd, you'd, you'd occasionally get Sundays off, but most of the time you were riding on Saturdays as well because the horses needed exercise. And so you'd ride and they would make a very conscious effort to, to put you on different horses all the time. So like now for, you know, years and years of doing that, I can just swing my leg on top of a horse and start riding. And it, and it just, I don't even think about it. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, whether it's a green horse or like a fresh horse or a, a more seasoned horse, you just jump on it and off you go. So we, from there, we did that for a while, and then eventually I joined the mounted side. So that's the, the that's the gentleman that do troop in the color, which is like the Queen's birthday parade, um, and like all the big. You, when you'd see the golden carriage, and I'm talking about the Queen because I never worked for the King, but at the time it was the Queen. Um, we had the, the Queen in her golden carriage riding for um, state visits um, when the presidents would come across, and so on and so forth. And I would ride um, on the horses for. Uh, that was part of my job. Did that for about three or four years, and then I got my PTI, and then I went in on a PTI's course, which is a physical training instructor. And this is um, our uniform was uh, camouflage bot, uh, um, trousers, and then you'd wear a bright white vest with red trim around it. And that was you're the physical training instructor. And can I stop you and go you, back to the Queen? Yes, ma'am. Are you done? I mean, have, after when you're going into what did you call this last? regiment uh, the household cavalry well or the PTIs. That, yes yeah. so does that have anything to do with the queen not so much so i so we did the cere- we did the ceremonial we did the ceremonial thing and you know we'd go from you know from all the different events that we did and and i got actually i got thrown off my horse Three, you three, got thrown off your horse many times. <laughs> I got, I got, is this in, in your training or is this actually in front of the queen? This was actually one of this time was actually in front of the queen. So oh, please do tell this story. I want to hear. So three times in front of the queen, I got thrown off. I was on a horse oh called gosh. Endeavor, which was the biggest butt of a horse known to man, <laughs> and it's just it's absolute butt. So we were in just outside Windsor Castle, and it was um I want to say it was the uh, the whole it was um. It was a big show jumping competition and we'd gone down and we were, we were doing practices over to the side and this horse would come right up to the jump and just before it got to the jump, it would like buck, it would it would bolt like mid-air, it would bolt to the left and I would keep on flying. So think of like a Tom and Jerry sketch where the, the, the dude's flying through mid-air and he's got his like hands and feet like perfect, like he's riding a horse without a horse. But there's no him. horse underneath but him. But there's no horse underneath <laughs> him. And I'd go crashing through the barrier and I was like, and I got... That was the second time I was furious, and then the third time it happened, I was, it did it again to me and kept on doing it. And I'm not, and I'm. I'm and this is I, the same horse. This is the same horse, <laughs> and it was this horse is just renowned for being an absolute snot monster. So I eventually got hold of um, I got hold of a whip or a cane. I shortened its reins up, and then I, I wrote, I took it to the outside of the arena, and I galloped, the, the, I galloped this horse for like 10 minutes to wear it out wear him out i was like i will show you who the boss is and then eventually went came back to his jump and then just gave him a good hide in and he went straight over the top of this went straight over the top of this jump and made him go over this jump and then he's fine he just he was he was scared of doing this jump and he just would not do it he just because he didn't want to do it 
Um, but from there, we did all sorts. We some of the, some of the stuff that we did in the house carry was just phenomenal. Like we'd go um, cross country racing with the horses, which was just phenomenal. Some of these horses, I mean, if any of you guys know anything about horses, the biggest one we had was nineteen one hands, which is just. And you measure a horse by hands. By hands, right? And, it's, you know and it's, it's typically normal sized hands. So you have your hand, and then you put your palm over the top of your fingers, like so, and that's the hand essentially. Okay. Um, but it would, the horse is measured by hands, but most of our horses were all 17 up. Like an, an average horse size is um, maybe like 15-ish, something like that. So all our horses were all real big, ho- real big horses. But we had one called Huntington, which I used to ride a lot, which was one of my favorite horses. Um, and we would go, um, we'd go um, hunt, um, cross-country racing with the horses. So we'd go down to events and we'd rock up and we'd take the horses out and we're going to race these courses. And it was just think of it as like, um, so you go like racing through these fields at like full gallop, jumping over six foot hedges, over fences, through creeks. Also, it was just amazing. What were the distances? Distances About five, five to 10 miles. Okay. Something like that. They vary. Some You have more endurance ones, which you'd, a lot of the Arabian horses would do. So you like out in the desert, they would be tremendous distances. But we would ours would be between like five and ten miles, give or take. Um, and there was this one called Huntington. I remember vividly, and me, it was me and a partner were racing together. So he was to the side of me, and it was me to the left, and we were bombing down this hill. And as we came bombing down this hill, there's a there's a big hedge at the bottom, and this hedge is six and a half, seven foot high, something like that. It was, and he came get a full gallop, and you give him a half halt. A half halt is a momentary collection of a horse in motion. So what you'll do is you'll slowly pull the reins back and then you'll give it again and you'll slowly give back and you'll give. And this horse was like, nope, we're going full belt. And, and full it just, power over. Full power. And then what the horse did is he bit hold of the bit and then pushed his jaw out. So you had no you had no steering essentially. He was on the back of it and he knew where he was going. And I was like, oh, I'm going to die. Oh, I'm going to die. He was doing what he wanted to he do. He was doing what he was doing. And, you know, we, we can sit there and think we're the best horse riders in the entire world. But if that horse wants to do something, he's going to do it. And there's nothing you can do. So I was like, okay, well, I guess this is what we're doing. And we came flying up to this this hedge and he just jumped over it. And he must jump from about probably about eight to 10 feet behind the back of this hedge, jumped over it all the way over the top of this hedge. And this horse was clipping along, went over the top of this hedge and landed on the other side. And as you were flying through the air, I'm looking down, I was, it felt like I was on the moon. Came down the other side, landed, and it just kept on trucking. And it was just... I bet it was fun. F- so much fun. Absolutely fun. So, like, I was never good at show jumping because it's it's all position and posture and, and how you compose yourself because you have to be very proper and prim and you have to look from what you wear but cross country was just like arms and legs everywhere just, just go, go just go and hold on and that was more my nature and it was just so much fun were these competitions that you did with your um with the, the group of okay with your regiment. so we go regiment and we go to civilian um we go to civilian um races and so on and so forth but on each year we take the horses on each year we take the horses on vacation and what we do is we take them down to grass, which was all the shoe, all the horseshoes would get taken off, and they would run right on grass and go bonkers. But we'd also each it was one day a year when we were down there, we would take the horses down to the beach, and we would ride bareback, and we would gallop along the beach just bareback with them, and it was just so much fun. And we then we would take them out swimming, which was, was bonkers. So you go out into the water and the horses would like kind of like sloshing around and it'd be really fun and just let them play and mess around. And then all of a sudden 
they'd go so far out and then you could just feel them go like start to like where their feet could just wasn't quite touching the ground and then you, all of a sudden they jump and then as they did that you swing your legs back and you lay on the back and you just hold on around the neck and they'd go swimming out in the water and you're riding on the back of them and it was just so much fun and these horses would be swimming and they'd just be so excitable and it was just brilliant and then as and then what we'd do is you'd come back in and you'd play with them and you'd jump onto different horses and it was just like some of the stuff that we did there was just phenomenal and it's like these these events that we did were just these are these are experiences that are not the the norm for people and i and yeah. I, I always have to i have to always remind myself of that like the life that i've led has been bonkers and the stuff that we did we lived in knightsbridge which is the knightsbridge is one of the wealthiest parts of london there's an apartments down the road which would just go for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars or pounds sorry and we got to live there and I could see Hyde Park from my bedroom and it was just absolutely bonkers place to live and it's just the the workload was incredibly hard we worked incredibly long hours and you know this is this is a long time before I knew who the Lord was but I would go out drinking and partying and doing all this all the silly things that that I that got myself into trouble with and we, we could do whatever we wanted to and it was it was brilliant and there was there's there's aspects to that job which you just you you, you just don't you there's nobody else that could have them like it's we like would go dream. it was it was awesome and there was there was times it was not fun <laughs> by, <course>. by any <laughs> stretch but like on a saturday morning we would have the freedom to go and take the horses out into high park which high park's like a tremendously it's, it's kind of like think of a central park but about three times the size Maybe not three times, but it was a, it was a, it was bigger than Central Park, and they had a big riding path all the way around it, like a sand like a sand path all the way around, and we could just go riding. So we'd get up in the morning and choose the fastest horse, and there was a horse called Somerset who had one eye, who was a raving lunatic. If you came on the side, of, <laughs> if you came on the side with it with his eye, he would try and bite you. The <laughs> one that he couldn't. The, the, the one, one, no, no, the one that he could see you, he would try and bite he you. He would try and bite you. Okay. But if you came on the side that he didn't have any, if he didn't have the one that he didn't have an eye, he was fine. But he, he couldn't see you. He couldn't see you. But but he but you but you hold on to his you touch him on the side and he was absolutely fine. And so we would take him out and he was so he was by fast the fastest horse by a long way. He was he was he was really fast. And you could just jump on back of him and just go pelting around High Park. And people were out on their stroll, like doing the strollers, jogging and doing doing whatever they want. And we're just out there just absolutely ripping on these horses around the park on a Saturday morning. And I'm just like, this is pretty cool. This is this is, this is is some pretty cool Very stuff. Very cool. How many people are in your regiment? Um, it's not a particularly big regiment. I think at the time, I want to say it was about on the horse side, it's about 500 on the horse side. And then there, so there's two parts to our regiment. There's the ceremonial side and then there's the formation reconnaissance, reconnaissance side, which is... Um, small tanks um, that we used for recce and, or sorry, reconnaissance and find, essentially finding the <laughs> recce. recce. Okay, got, got it. Find, find, finding the enemy and then reporting back and you had forward air controllers, snipers and all that fun stuff. Um, but there's essentially 500 and 500, give or take. But we, um, we, we would go and we'd go off and do these, these bonkers things and do whatever we want to. So did you, were, were you considered, just so I'm understanding this with the with the queen, I'm mm -hmm. still back to the queen, but did you, 
were you her bodyguard essentially? Are you are you kind of like Secret Service here, or is it is it more ceremonial? It's, of- it's more cer- it's more ceremonial, but the, the purpose, as you know, as I said, the chat up line to my lovely wifey is Queen Elizabeth II's personal bodyguard and ceremonial duty. So on ceremonial duty, we were the first line of defense. So uh, somebody from the crowd tried to come across, they would immediately, us on horses, would just pile them down. And I, our job, my job was to ride over them, like in a second. I wouldn't even like hesitate. And So you're constantly watching. You're on it. And, and it's, you're very observant. You have to be very observant to who's around and so on and so forth. And that was, that was your job. So each year... When we'd gone the vacation with the horses, we would before we'd get into the fun stuff, we would we would do I think it was called um, what was the name of it? It's like op, whatever whatever it's called. But we we would practice if there was an incident around the 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 golden carriage. So we'd have a carriage, and then we'd go through one of our training areas, and they would have like buildings all the way around, and then you know an explosion would go off what were the skills and drills it was like immediately all the horses would pile around the golden carriage and be you know to protect uh, to, to protect protect the queen and it would like immediately and then so we were the first line of defense so we have all the horses would go around and interlock with each other swords would be out ready to rock and roll and then around immediately around us then the foot guards so you see the guys with the the big black bear skins on top of their head yes they would go around the outside of us and that'd be the second line of defense and then that would stop any across like from protesters and so on and so forth which we really didn't run into too much but occasionally that would happen but we would practice for that so before so when we were practicing for these for, the, for these events there would always be a bunch of lads that were on their feet and w- there the time off was was very they didn't give you a lot of time off work so it was very s- scarce so each year they would do they would go okay Anybody that gets to the carriage, anybody who gets to the carriage gets a week off, an extra week off work. So they'd have like twenty, they'd have like twenty of us on our feet, and they're like, get to the golden carriage, and that's your job. And we'd have like, we they would go through like this multiple times, like explosion would go off immediately, all the horses would go around, and then we'd be able to get in there, and that would be our job trying to do them. So we would just sit there and just mess around the whole time. We'd be like throwing stones in the back of the horse, like little pebbles in the back of the horses, <laughs> getting to kick off. And then trying to get in. Oh, and to the, 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 the smallest lads would just like bolt underneath the horse's legs and then oh, climb, climb up. And you got into all these kind of shenanigans. Anyway, I, I know at one point I ran across, but their job is to keep you off. So as much as it's a game, they've got they've got bats in the hand. They're be, they're beating you as you're trying to get across. So I ran across, I, I hopped onto the back of a horse and then started running across the horse's backs. And then somebody, This sounds like a movie. <laughs> it was running br- across the back of the horse. It was brilliant. And we did we did all these fun things. And it's like I never got I never got to the go on character. I think the one of the times I got smacked in the head. Well, we bat. hope you don't make it. No, it's, it's the point. The but, point, yeah. But we I got smacked in the back of the head and then fell down between the horse and then skirted my way back out. But there was other lads that would go through and then like undo the undo the horse's saddles, so the saddles with the guys with foot on top and then mm-hmm. just set absolute carnage. And then, like, how quickly that they could get back into there and cause and try and good, re-protect. Good training. But it was it was fun. And, like, every morning, so we'd do, we'd go on guard. So guard was a 36-hour, um, was, twenty sorry, 24-hour guard. And what you'd do is you'd go down in the morning at 11 o'clock, you'd have to be at Whitehall on the horses. So this would be... 12 of us plus the troop sergeant. So we didn't have sergeants because sergeant translates to serve and we don't serve. So we'd have a couple of horses. 
So there's no sergeants within the house or cavalry. It's it's trooper, it's trooper, lance corporal, lance corporal horse, corporal of horse, staff corporal major, corporal ma- regimental corporal major, regimental corporal major. I think that's right. Am I losing my mind? I think that's right. Um, if you, if you said it wrong, I wouldn't know anyway. Know, so it's, it's been a long time. Um, but the sergeant would translate as to serve, and we don't serve; we protect the queen. So we we never had sergeant because it's a French word. It's also the French and the surrender monkeys. But <laughs> we we um, we we would go down to guard. We had to be down there by eleven o'clock. So we would, we would, we would trot down to Whitehall. We'd go past Buckingham Palace, and we'd salute on the way down down uh, outside the camp on your left-hand side, you'd have a memorial to when the IRA blew up the horses, I think it was 1981 or 1982, I might, I might be wrong on that date, um, a, a car bomb went off and killed a bunch of lads on their horses. Mm. And it was, um, there's a memorial. So the regiment, would every time it'd go by, would always salute. And salute on the horse would be, you'd sword be up, and the troops, troop sergeant, which is for easy, for, for people to understand, like the troop sergeant at the back would would shout to salute to left. So you'd salute immediately to your left-hand side and on the way back in, you'd salute to your right-hand side. Then you get down to Whitehall and the moment you get down to Whitehall, you would you would do changing of the guards. So the, the lifeguards would swap the Blues and Royals and Blues and Royals would swap the lifeguards. And then you were there at, at, at that, um, at Whitehall. Whitehall is kind of, um, I suppose like a small pentagon something like that. But mm-hmm. It's where all the big wigs go and um, all the generals and that's where they work. And what we would do is we would we would guard outside there. And when, anyway, when we would guard outside there, we would, we'd, there'd be two lads in the horses, in the horse boxes, and then a couple lads on their feet. And I remember one distinctive incident that I was on my feet and I was marching backwards and forwards. And you'd always, you'd always get, and, and, and this is the cliche of Americans, Americans were always the really annoying ones because they would always try and like hug you or like touch you or like, oh, I can stand in front of him and he won't do anything because yes. they can't talk to me. Where it's the biggest load of 12 old known to man. And what we would do is we'd march backwards and forwards and if there were people in the way, you'd just punch them. You have a sword in your hand and you just belt them. So if, if a Taurus came up, you would <laughs> yeah. mow them over and basically. Mow, mow them over. So the one incident that I was going down through through the arches and as I came out the arches, you'd scream like, stand clear of the guard. Everybody would peel to the side and this one guy was walking away from me and would refuse to move. And I kept on screaming. I was like, fine. And I got closer and I sort of lifted my hand back and belted him in the side of his kidneys and he went flying over to the side and then just kept on trucking. Get to the end, you stand still, you look to your left, you look to your right, you check on the each the the left box and the right box. He came across to in front of me, went berserk, but he didn't go berserk because he was shouting at me, he went berserk because he was doing sign language. Oh, he couldn't hear? He couldn't hear. Oh gosh, Jack. <laughs> so, so how bad did you feel at that point? Not really that bad. I was, oh, just, like, <laughs> I was just like, okay, rock on. So then we went from there and then you that you were on your feet, you're on your horses, you'd be on your if you're on your feet, I think it was you were on your feet for two hours. If you're on the horse, you're on for an hour. So the horses' backs aren't just aching the whole time. And mm. that's how you would you would you would shift through. Um and then from there we did we did all sorts. Like all sorts of other things from I think it was Obama came across and we we did a um, we did a, a state visit for him and a bunch of other events. I think I was there for about three and a half years. But from that place, I went and did my PTI's course, which is a physical training instructor's course. It's a twelve week course and it is it's pretty gnarly. But 
what would you compare that to here? Or do you do you even know? I mean, is this like Navy SEALs training? Is no, this it, it's different. It's different than that. So you're you're the person that will train people that train their regiment for their physical uh, challenges that they have to do, their physical courses, so on and so forth. And there was this, so you kind of like think of day one, week one of boot camp. You're getting off the bus and there's somebody screaming at you immediately. That's what. That's I what it was. Okay, I, I did that for a while. That, that was that's one of the jobs that PTI will do. You so, were teaching it, or you were. I so you I were went in the did, program. I was in the program, so okay. I went and did that course. That's where I first did that course. So I so you're still part of your regiment, but you go off and do this course. So this course is three months long, and it's every single day you're working out between five and seven times a day, every single day. It Which was, makes you really love fitness. Oh, it's just bonkers. Oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> but like, I think we measured at the time, I think my body fat, and, and this is working out, I mean, like apps, I can't describe how much it, it was absolutely bonkers. But I think my body fat was like 4.2 or 4.5. Mm. It was just so low. What kind of things would they it make would you do? It would be from like log racing to run running, but it was where you learn... So you also learn all the the anatomy and physiology behind the body and how it works as as much as it's people screaming and shouting. And you'll learn how to structure classes and how we have to prep people for... So like a lot of the army is running with weight on your back. So you've got a lot of weight. Sometimes we can have 120 pounds on your back and you're running tremendous distances with that kind of weight. But you go on this course and it was every day you're teaching or you're getting taught to. So think of it as 12 people in your class in your, you know, there was six classes. One of your classes, there's 12 people in there. One person's teaching the class and the other 11 people are doing the class. Next class, next person teaching, and then that person's in there. And then that's why you're doing between five and seven classes a day. And then between all that, you've got all your, your, your theory and all your anatomy and physiology and all that jazz. Um, like gonna, regular classes. Like your regular classes. So you do all that kind of stuff. And then from there, you go off and... You do stuff every day. And then on Fridays was always COs PT, which was just horrific. So then the... So what is that? COs PT is commanding officer. So you'd have the... Um, so above... So the, the, we'd have our 12 people in our class and then we'd have another troop sergeant over our class who on Fridays, one of those instructors had to prep a class for all of the reg, all the people that are doing all the classes. So a different person. And sometimes we would do boot camp, sorry, sorry, boot run. Sometimes we do an obstacle course. Sometimes we would do um, log runs, which is you'd have a ginormous log and you'd run with it on your shoulders and you might run in it for. As a team? or As a, or, as a, te- as okay. a team. So You're you not carrying like, that by yourself. You've got nah. your whole team. So you might have you know, 10 people in your, or 12 people in your on your log, but you might only have, eight people on the log or six people on the log and you're train changing through and you're racing the other mm-hmm. six classes. And then like if you if you're last person in, you have to go out again and just just stuff like that. And it just made everybody super, super competitive. But it's like you you go from learning about strength and conditioning to, you know, obviously like big boy weights to like snatches and cleans to bench press to like endurance events. So you, you it's like you're it's almost the best body type for that is is like you like you almost have to be a hybrid. You still have to run tremendous distances really fast. Like for that course, you, minimum for a mile and a half is is nine and a half minutes. And by that point, I was down to about seven seven minutes ten seconds. Something like that. But is it's not just running, is it? Aren't you carrying 
on on that on that so you've got you've got several phases the first part the basic one is two minutes push-ups two minutes setups and a mile and a half run and you have a mile and a half run you have to do it in nine and a half minutes relatively flat course um not carrying anything though. not carrying anything okay. but um but you have to do that as fast as you can and so you would you would do you do that and then you come back in and then you'd normally do a cft which is a combat fitness combat combat fitness test and you'd put um so they were very much that this particular course they were very much about the the book and like what the the the, the time is you had under nine and a half minutes to do it and then your cft which was you had 55 pounds and you had to do eight miles under two hours it's a breeze it's easy peasy so with 55 pounds yeah which like do with your eyes closed. It's not that hard. Um, <laughs> for a lot of people, it's really hard. <laughs> for, for the for the individuals that are going on this course for their fitness level, that's not that's not bad. Okay, in comparison, <laughs> in comparison, it, it wasn't bad. It makes sense. So you're like, this is fine. But like another course we did, we had to do that same run much much faster. I think there's anyway. I'll talk about that in a minute. But like that, um, so you go off and do this thing for twelve weeks, and it was every single day, and eventually you get qualified at the end. When you get qualified, when you get qualified at the end, you then go back to your regiment. Uh, once you go back to your regiment, then you can then you teach your regiment. So you, I went back to the ceremonial side for about six months or four months, and I trained up my regiment because at that time our regiment didn't have a PTI because Knightsbridge is is just survival mode. It's very very hard. It's, it's you're working incredibly long hours, and they don't prioritize fitness. So they might do. Mm-hmm. A, they might do your basic fitness test once every once a year, maybe. So they really like try and like live under the radar. So the, the fitness is not that important of a thing because you're always working. You're always like like working the horses. Riding a horse is more important than it's, it's more important. And and, and they had limited. Which is a always, great workout. It's great. Um, and then so you'll do all you do all that you'll do all that stuff. And eventually I went over to the armored side. And from from the ceremonial side, I went and did my PTI's course. Sorry, my P company. Now, P Company is, is pre-parachute selection. I suppose the nearest comparison that I can think of, and I might be wrong in this, is kind of like a mini ranger school. And it is really, really hard course. And that's how many weeks? Uh, it's three and a half weeks. It's just over three and a half weeks. And um, but this way, we started off with 118 of us, and I think it was 17 of us that passed mm-hmm. and made it to the end. And it's stuff like, so the the first day is, is your, you do your mile and a half and you do your eight mile run the same day. So first of all, you have to do under nine and a half minutes. You run the mile and a half first. You get to the end. And I remember this, it was, it was awful. So you got to the end and then it goes, right, go go, go for a pee, tap your shoelaces, do whatever. So every like moseying around, tying up, stretching off the legs and stuff. It comes to the front and everybody's like lining up, like like getting ready to go. And then we start talking about the football and hanging out and he's chatting away and he's, and he's like, there's people at the back still moving around. He goes, boys, I don't know what you're messing around for. I, I started the clock like a minute and a half ago. And it was like, <gasps> and everybody just like immediately bolted off. And he was deadly serious. And this and was like, to do your eight mile? This is to do your mile and a half. Mile and a half, okay. So I came, boog- and you have to do it in boots. And and it's mm. and it's like rolling gravel hit. Like it's like a, it's, this is a place called Catrick, which is up north. And it's, it's kind of, it's like a training ground. It's just not very fun. And it's like double wide tracks and it's like undulating. It's just rolling up and down. And I bust that out. I think I bust that out in maybe like, I think it was just under eight minutes. Because we- Wearing boots. Wearing boots. Maybe it was a bit faster than that. Maybe it was 7.40 or something, something like that. But anyway, from that, and then you go out and you do your eight mile run. So you come back in, get changed, grab a kit. 
then you go out on an eight mile run. Your eight mile run, you have 55 pounds on your back, you have helmet, rifle, and boots. And we did it in 56 minutes, hmm. which was boogie. Yes. That was really boogie. Especially with all that. I mean, that's very much boogie. <laughs> it was, it was, in boots, carrying all that equipment. It, it was, there's, there's no other thing than boogie in. And then they, it was every single day was just heinous it was just did you have to do that every day or just stuff like that every single day and it was you'd have three you traditionally have three real hard workouts so the p company is just so it's it's your preparation to be to get your p company or to be pre-parachute so it's not you're not parachute regiment but you've got that course and what it would do is you they would just test you and see how mentally strong you are Mm -hmm. and they just their job is to try and break you more more mental than oh 100 percent. and it and and it, it was just absolutely bonkers the stuff that we did i think halfway through the course i twisted my ankle and i rolled over my ankle my ankle went as fat as my calf mm. and it was the end of it we got an x-ray and i went back so i refused to stop and it had taken off little the ligament of sh- uh, pulled off little uh, ligament the little shards of bone and that was that had made my ankle swell up so i couldn't really run really well for a really long time after that but i was determined not to do those first two weeks again so i just kept on trucking so I tie my boots really tight, and then as I was running, I could feel my eyes watering. It was so painful. But that course, we did a um, we did a what was it? We did in the morning. One of them the days was really bad, and it was I think we did a we did an eight mile run in the morning, fifty five pounds. We did think we did fifty five minutes again. Did the same. We did the same run again. That evening we went out. We did, we did a circuit training at lunchtime. Which was just like burpees and just over and over and over over and over again for like an hour and a half in the gym. And it was just, they have something called a pudding mat, which is like when you go rock climbing, you have like a big squishy mat. Mm-hmm. And what they'll do is if somebody's not working hard enough, they'll grab them and they'll throw them on the pudding mat and they'll make them jump with knees, knees to chest and they'll scream at them to go knees to chest. And everybody's wearing a number the whole time. So you've got a number on your, on your beard. So if you're not working hard enough, they'll jot your number down, they'll, they'll can you. So you have to you have to be working hard. So the, the, if you went on the pudding mat, you had to scream, "I'm a pudding." No, I like to eat pudding because I'm a pudding boy. <laughs> While you're jumping up and down. While you're jumping up and down, <laughs> and then they'll come across and they'll ask you history questions. They're like, "Oh, hey, um, while you're doing this knees test, and they're screaming at you, they're like, hey, what's your um, what was the date of D Day? Do you know that? Do you?" And, you, and you're like, do ah, the same, that is wonderful. And there's firing off history questions to you. And if you don't answer it correctly? You stay on there. And they'll leave you on that. And then they just absolutely destroy us. And we did this for maybe an hour and a half or something like that. You go back and then you just eat. like You just pile food down your throat. That evening we went out and we did a night nav. So we get dropped off at a location. We have a Bergen's. So Bergen's is like your rucksack. And, and for this particular one, they had to weigh 120 pounds. So they weighed our Bergens in, jumped on the wagon, got off the wagon, got onto our feet, and then they Wagon, go, is that a car? <laughs> oh, wagon's um, uh, a truck. A truck, okay. A truck. So we, you, jump off the back, you jump off the back of the wagon, and when you jump off the back of the wagon, <coughs> you would, um, everybody would form up, and you get your notepads and pens out, and they're like, right, I'm going to give you 10 grid references. But the first one's, you ready, boys? It's 67627232321. Next one. Six seven two three two seven two six two five, and you'd have to jot these down. You get one time, and, and these are grid. These are grid references oh on a map. My goodness! So they'd they'd rally them off, and then you'd get right. You got fifteen more minutes. To prep your route. 
So these, so it's kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it. Um, you have to go to like a checkpoint. You have to mm-hmm. go to these checkpoints, you get a stamp, and then you go to the next one, you get a stamp. And this is at what time of night? This is like maybe 11 o'clock at night. Like and that. what are you allowed to have? Nothing. No lights, nothing. You got weapons. No lights, no. Do you have a compass? You have a, com- you have okay. a compass and a map. And compass and a map, okay. But they don't tell you where you are. They that's just drop you, you in the middle of wherever. You, they, they, they give you the grid references and they tell you to get your maps out and mark them out. So you mark them out, but they don't tell you the grid reference of where you're stood. So you have to you have to work that out from back back mapping. So you, you you kind of work out from the terrain and everything else. You're like, right, I think we're here. And everybody's like, like you've got you you've got your teams of two, so there's two of you together, and you're sitting there, and you're marking everything out on the map. It doesn't matter however you put this map together, it is you're doing 24 miles. You, some people are doing 24, some people are doing 30. That's 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 it. There's no ifs, there's no ifs or buts. Like you can you can come up with creative ways all you want. You can go you go straight across the marshes if you want, but you're still doing. You're still at doing least 24, 24 miles. miles. It, don't, it don't make a difference. How many checkpoints are there? Uh, I think it was ten. I want to say hmm. maybe it's eight or ten checkpoints. Um, so we have 120 pounds on our back, and I go and just before the leave, we go. Oh yeah, boys, you got six hours. If you don't make it back in the six hours, you cut off. Go. Every bolts off. And while you're running, and while you're running this this event, you've got people looking for you to try and capture you. <laughs> Oh my well. goodness. So you're hauling, let's not make it hard enough. No, let's make it harder. So you're hauling butt and you're running and you've got six hours, which with 120 pounds on your back, it's roughly a 12. Oh, that's so it's, hard. It's uh, roughly like a 12 minute mile, I want to say, I think it is. And you're not knowing where you're going. And you run. And, and you're running with all this weight. And you're running with all this weight. And you've been done whatever else you've done throughout the rest of the day. Like, like when I say I'm headstrong, I'm headstrong. Yes. <laughs> and it's like you get these, You it makes you so strong world and people drop off all the time and just like i'm done i can't take this and that's what they were looking for they want to they want to peel off they want to trim the fat and get rid of the nonsense the glory boys who just want to be there because they want to wear a maroon berry so if you once you've done this course you get a maroon berry so they're chasing you also in the middle of the night yeah and if they catch you they'll beat you up so great so you you you're doing this you're doing this thing and <coughs> anyway so you go for everything we make it to the end and when you get back into the end you peel into camp and you're just like absolutely fried do you remember what you made it back in i think it was like five and a half hours something like that did you go 24 miles or do you even know 24 miles easy there's no there's no way there's no way of doing that that night now Mm -hmm. without doing that distance it was horrific some people got lost and ended up doing 30 something miles i think there's one boy did like 35 miles so do they eventually go look for you and leave you to it if you can't get back then this course isn't for you they'll just leave you out there Mm. you'll find your way back Eventually, you eventually, eventually you're going to find your way back. So they, their their notion is like this is you you've got to be able to do this. There's no ifs or buts. You have to be able to do this because you could be in this situation. You'd be in this situation. Point. If you can't fight your way out of it, you can't. Then you shouldn't be on this course. You didn't prep for this course. Prior, prior preparation prevents. I can't. I don't know if I should say that word. Uh, sure. You always prepare for. You always prepare for the unexpected, and it was, it was. Um, that's what they wanted to see from you. So you'd come back in and you'd be out that night. And what you do is you'd sleep, you'd sleep out, out of the night. So you'd get in and they're like, right, go and get yourself some food, get some food down your neck. You'd eat, eat a bunch of food, get into your sleeping bag, go to sleep. About three hours after falling asleep, they'd wake you up and then mm-hmm. they'd go and rag you. And there's this big marshy field which you know, went up a hill and they would just thrash you up and down this field, up, down. There'd sc- so be screams of up, down, up, down. And then as you run in, they'd be like, grenade and you'd have to lay in your tummy and you'd have to crawl forwards through the marsh mm. get back up back down and do this it was like two hours two three hours of this nonsense 
came back in. Then, right, you've got half an hour, get food. When they say half an hour, you really know you've got about 10 minutes. So you, you, you don't have time to heat your food up. So you just eat it cold and just shove it down your neck. And then they, they, they frog march you back to camp and you run back to camp. And I think we went like two or three miles. And we were all, we were all aware we're about 15 miles away from camp at this point. It's like, all right, this is what it is. Get, get trucking. So then you're running down the road for maybe 15-ish miles with that kind of weight back into camp, get showered and changed, and then your day starts. This is not the ideal way to start trail running. <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't like this. I didn't like running. I thought running was horrific. So I did all did all these different did all these different things, and it was it was just it, it was bonkers. But it, I found it absolutely fascinating. And and this is my unpeaceiness of me that all of a sudden at the beginning, all the fit lads and all the skinny lads would just be crushing on the first the first couple of days, and then they would drop back. And excuse the expression, the fat lads would move up to the front, and because they're used to suffering all the time, and it's just hmm. normal for them, and they would just they would peel over and they would take over to the front, and then the fit lads would drop to the back, and it was happened every single time, and it was just amazing. It was like phenomenal to watch because you could see these lads, who are, some of them are not not what we would consider like big boys, but for the for the, for the army they were they were they were, they were stout dudes and. Like, you know, they're all like 250, 250 pounds, mm -hmm. 230. And you'd watch them just peel up to the front. And they're just like, all right, rock on. It's a bit of pain. Let's keep on trucking. So you do that. And then it went on It went on for that for, for a while. And you do something called milling, which is just, it's you'd stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody. So they, they'd partner people off the right way, around, around the right size, and you do milling. So you, me and you would stand toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and you'd punch each other in the face as hard as you can what? for a minute, minute solid. Just back and forth. You had gloves on, but you wasn't. Oh, you wonderful! Wasn't, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> you had really light. What was the point of this? So the, the whole point is, is you're to, you're toe to toe and you're you're belting the hell out of each other because you the person you're not allowed to have put any defensive shots. So somebody, even if somebody's boxing, they'll stop you immediately. They'll grab somebody else in and they'll just keep them. Every time that you try to box, like some of the boys have been boxers and every time they try to start putting boxing defensive like hands up, they would just stop them. They get somebody else fresh in there and they start belting them again. Eventually just keep them and going. And this is just to... Toes, toes. The whole point is that you never back down from a fight that we're, that, and they want to be able to see that you have the, at least have the ability to be able to keep fighting regardless if you get punched in the face. Because when everything goes piton or everything goes upside down, then you've got to be able to keep on trucking. I mean, did anybody get knocked out? <laughs> a couple of people got knocked out. I'm sure. Um, I know there's the guy that I was fighting with. He was a bit bigger than I was. And I remember belting him and then watching him like stop and like looking into the sky. And it's both <laughs> his hands up. It's like, he's, he's gone. I was like, oh, I've got him. I've got him. I've got him. And he was like, snap. He came back alive. And the moment he came back oh. alive again, he so it's just like you have these moments and it's just so funny and it's just you're doing them and it's just there's nothing like i know i have no off switch once i once i turn on it's just and it's been beaten into me it's like once it's go time it's go time mm -hmm. and and that's just from years and years of being thrown around and beaten and just like i won't back down ever which is not always a good thing so you made it through the course i made it through the course and then what uh, and then, then I went back to my regiment to the ceremonial side, and then from the ceremonial side we went over to the armoured side. So we had small tanks called scimitars, which were from the eighties, and they were used in the Falklands and the they were used in the Falklands and like um, used in uh, used in Ireland a little bit. I want to say um, not the greatest tanks in the entire world, but regardless. So you, then from there, I went off and did my tank driving course. 
and then gunnery course and so on and so forth. And we did all those kind of weapon systems. But when I was there, because I was a PTI, a lot of time I worked in the gym. So I I was, you know, I was, I was, I was a fitness instructor and I would take the regiment out and I would thrash them. And I got... When you say thrash them, what I'm, do you mean? Because thr- thrash- it sounds like you beat them. No, no, no. <laughs> when you say thrash. Th- thrash would be, uh, I would take them out and I would destroy them. Like in, 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 in that not, sounds so much better. What do you uh, mean by that? Thrash would be, um, <laughs> I would run them at like a really, really fast paces. And these are boys that aren't the same fitness as I was in terms of P company and, and of my PTIs. So they were a little bit more well-fed and we, we, I just destroyed Just them. work them. I'd work them into the ground. And we always have a, like on, on COS PT on the Friday, we'd always have a paddy wagon. So the wagon or the paddy wagon or the fat wagon that if you dropped off, you jump into the back of the wagon. And then the ne- that what would that would mean is that you're working a weekend. So nobody mm-hmm. wanted to go in the back of the wagon. So you would we'd go off and we'd thrash the regiment. And so I had my uh, squadron. So I think it was B squad. I was B squadron. And we, I would, I worked really hard and trained them and getting them all like really, really fit. And one of my, one of my, one of my things that I really focused on was stretching. Not a lot of hmm. people focused on that because I wanted to be able to thrash them, but I also wanted to be able to do it again tomorrow. And by I really spent a lot of time stretching with them and really focusing on it. And, and very much of the mentality at the time, and maybe it got better now, but very much of the time it was like thrash, 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 thrash. And then go and get changed. We were down the tank park. And I would, I would actively spend like 10, 15 minutes every single time really working on pe- where people are stiff, where people are tight and like people's, feet were was was a huge thing in the army that mm-hmm. that was like right shoots and uh, boots and socks off and we check people's feet you're like you're getting hot spots here you're getting hot spots there this is how we're going to fix this, this is how we're going to fix that you're tying too tight down here you're not tying up but tight enough up here and you could see from the way that the the hot spots and stuff were and i mean i'm sure you're aware of the, all this stuff right but, but from where people's were having issues with their feet we would sit there and we would we go oh, okay you need. We need to do this to your feet, and we. This is where you should be taping them up, and so on and so forth. Um, because those issues can become huge. Huge, especially when you're out in the field and you're on your own. You've got to go. You've got to be able to take care of yourself. So, we we did that, and then I suppose going back to your original question about like my relationship with fitness and where it went from is I had a pretty. I suppose there's no real easy way of saying this. I had a pretty horrific childhood. And I was a very, very angry person. And this was a fantastic outlet for me and then how I dealt with it. Like as a child, I was raped and sexually abused. And I just had just the worst childhood. And how old were you? I was probably seven when it started. And then it, and it was just, it went on for, for years, years and years and years. And like my dad was away a lot with work. Um, I think we calculated he was probably in the house three years of me growing up but he would he'd be back on weekends and he'd be back for for like extended periods of time he wasn't around a lot he was around he was away with work so I was it felt for me that I was very much on my own and and, and I, I never felt like I could ever talk to anybody so these this well, you were seven it started at seven I, I didn't have the mental capacity to understand no. so I was a very angry person for a long time from there um I so from joining the army and, and I was still a very angry man and I used to like going out fighting. So like Friday nights for me was fight night and I'd go, and one of my favorite pastimes was botting people in the face and fighting. And Like you would look for fights or oh, yeah. you just, oh, you go I'd, out I'd, drinking and, and oh, it, it, say it, it, once the you're my next victim. Oh no, no, I was, I was, and I was going to pick fights with bouncers. 
because oh. I like fighting. So it would normally start by me pick, picking up a bar stool and launching it at a bouncer, and then it was game <laughs> on. And I was just, I was not a nice person. I was, I was a very, very angry person for a long time. And my wife, God bless her, she settled me down. But before that, I was wide open, and I would just chase girls and do whatever I wanted to because I was petrified of the way that people would think of me, and I never told anybody. So I had... I had all this built up anger and, and I remember, you know, numerous times being in the army and the army doesn't help you with your anger. It tends to kind of reinforce the fact that you're an angry person. So I would, I'd fight everybody all the time. And it just, that's just an HP. If somebody would disagree with me, I'd punch them in the face. I wouldn't even think twice about it. Did you, did you ever get no. disciplined for this? Was it something Because I'd fight down, I'd never fight up. You would fight people in a lower rank than you, or, well, you, you or just you, same rank or lower down because you fight up. I mean, I'm sure, uh, there was a couple of incidents I had, a, I had with troop sergeants. Me and him, me and them would get at it, but my, you know, I'd go out fighting on Friday nights and Saturday nights, and I would just beat the living snot out of people, and that was just my favorite thing to do because I was, I had this scar and I had this anger that was built up in me that I was just like I was ready to destroy people, and you know and. I've known a little bit of this very small amount of the story, but when that happened to you, you obviously did not tell anyone. No, no. one knew that this was happening to you. So you had this all bottled up. Yeah, very much so. Inside. So th there was no there was no outlet for you. No. So th th as, I think, as I said, though, this, I mean, it started seven years old. And it went through to I was 13, 14. And it was just, it was a, it was a horrific, I had a horrific childhood. And this, it made me to the point of suicidal and depressed beyond belief. But I was very, I was very good at hiding it. So it was almost like everything looked clean and perfect on the outside of the cup. But on the inside, it was dirty. To me, not maybe not dirty is the wrong expression, but it was, it was, it was, it was, it was not happy. It was not happy camper. Like I look, give the expression that everything was normal and I was a happy boy and I was happy and everything was perfect. But on the outside, or the inside, I was miserable and I hated life. I hate life more than anything. I wanted to kill myself, and I think I've, you know. When did when did those feelings start? Kind of as I got older, when I started to comprehend the what the, just happened to what, you. What what happened to me as a child? Like one of the worst times is I'd stood and I'd I'd coming back, and I've told this story quite a few times. But when I had, and I've come, this is only like over the last year that I've actually managed to, to finally be able to talk about it. Worst times was I was in leaving Perbright when I was. I was at the Army Development Selection Center. So people who were looking to join the Army, they would come for 36 hours and we'd go through all sorts with them. But I was leaving this particular job and I'd, at that, this point I'd had enough. And it was, this, it was this, the only way I can describe it is think of a, think of you having like a tug of war match with somebody and it was this constant of, I want to, I'm going to kill myself. I just, I can't take this anymore. And it was just, you're not good enough. You're, you're a failure, this and this. And I had all these horrible thoughts coming from my head all the time. And how much I hated, I just hated life and every single thing. And, and I had you were a, how I, old? I was at this point, I was probably about, I think I was, I was married at this point. So I was you were married? Okay. I was 21. 21? It's about 21 years old. I think maybe 21, 22. And I, I just, I just had enough. And it, this thing would come around and it would just be there all the time. And it would just continuously wear me down. And I got so fed up with it. It was just like, I could never get away from it. It would be there when I woke up in the morning. It would be dreams about it. It would be there throughout the day. And it was just constantly there. And I never told anybody. So it was always me the whole time that was dealing with it because I was not willing to share this burden that I had because I was, I was terrified that people, 
I, I was terrified that people would think I was gay because I allowed it to happen. Like I, I was, I had convinced mm -hmm. myself that I was afraid that people would think I was gay. And, you know, uh, that's how I felt. And I hated myself for it. I absolutely hated everything about it. So this day I decided that I was like, I'm done. I'm going to go and kill myself. I've just, I can't take this anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't take this kind of abuse. I can't take this. I just want this to be done so hardly. And so that day, I so where I lived, I lived in London, but I worked in Purbright. And I took the train home. So I'd ride to the train station and then from the train station I'd ride home. And so I got to the train station and I sat in there for a while watching trains going by. Like went into London and we'd come there and I'd sit there and look at it for a while. And eventually I was, I was waiting for a fast train to come and an announcement that the fast train was coming. And I sit there and I was like, it's time, I'm going to do it right now. So I go up to the side of the track and it's like you get the announcement over the... Um, over the antennas, they stand stand back from the um, stand back from the tracks, and I was like, "All right, this is the time. I'm going to do this right now. I'm I'm done. I'm 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 sick and tired of this constant abuse, this constant wearing me down, just this miserable experience that I'm having in my life, and I feel absolute hatred towards myself, hatred in every single way. And I could see the train coming, and you could hear the train going, get louder and louder and louder and louder as it's coming towards me." And I could see the train coming. And as the train came closer, I got started. I'm like, right, this is going to happen right now. I'm going to do this right now. I've had enough. I'm taking control. And it, for me, it was, I'm going to take control. I'm going to kill myself. There's nobody that's going to stop me. I can do this. This is my choice. This is yeah. my choice, 100%. So the train gets closer. And as this train gets closer, I could see the conductor about 100, 150 feet away or so. I could see the conductor. And me and him locked eyes and this train's coming towards me. I'm like, right. It's game on, came on. I knew what he, he knew that what I was going to do. I knew what I was going to do. Mm. And I was still poised on the side, like one foot ready to pounce as it got close enough. And as that train came, came closer, I was like, right, it's going to happen right now. The train gets closer and closer and closer. And the train comes by, me and him, me and the conductor, the whole time of never locked, uh, never unlocked eyes. Train goes by me, it goes ripping past me. And at that moment, I could feel the, the the vibration from the tracks. I could feel the wind in my face. I could smell the oil from the train. And I'm sitting there, and I just feel this moment of how did I how did I get myself here? I felt anger. I felt anger that I was going to kill myself and never speak to my wife, mm. who I love more than anything in the world. I'd, I'd allowed, you know, even if you're not a religious person, this is this is the only way I can portray it. I allowed the enemy to control me and bring me to the the verge of suicide to the point of me killing myself and never telling anybody why. And I felt this just this hatred. I felt this hatred, and it's really messed up, but I felt this real hatred towards myself. And I felt hatred, well, I hate, felt hatred towards myself because I chickened out mm. and I should have jumped. I felt hatred because I was going to leave my wife and my wife was not going to know. My wife is just the most wonderful human being in the entire world and I love her more than anything in the entire world. And I'd do anything for her, but I felt that I was abandoning her and I was never telling her what, why I felt that way. And at that moment, I was like, this is, this is so bad. And, and I, and I sat there and I, I just sat and I went back and sat on the side of the train, the, the bench and just watched. I just, in my own little world, I was just like, I hate my life. I hate everything about me. Why can't I do anything about this? So I think from there, it just, went back home and so on and so forth and and you still and it just had these thoughts for such a long time and it was this moment that i didn't know what to do myself i was just like okay this is just what it is i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna be suicidal and 
I'm going to keep on trucking because I'm too proud. I'm too prideful to tell anybody who I am and what's happened to me. So I kept on, I guess, kept on trucking through life. And then eventually what I discovered was I could control this, not, not beat it, but I could control it with fitness. Mm-hmm. So every single time that I was starting to get like these real, like get real anxious with it and really started to like wind me up. It started to tease me. I was like, all right, game on, let's go for a run. And I would go and destroy myself. Like to the point of throwing up with myself, I would not stop. I was apps and 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 what I did was and and, I, and this this gave people and I'm sure people have got really bad relationships with fitness because I destroyed them, absolutely destroyed them. I took them out and thrashed the living snot out of them. Like I would take them out for an eight mile run, would wait on the back, come into camp, I would loop them around camp and then take them back out again just because I could. Just because you could. Just because I can. And nobody, and nobody, no, was nobody, there was nobody above me to tell me that I couldn't do that. So I could do whatever I wanted to. And I would just destroy people. I absolutely loved it. And it was my way of me being stronger than everybody else. And I always made, I trained like an absolute madman. Like I was, I was kind of into triathlons at that point. So I cycled 26 miles from, from London to Windsor at that point. And I would do it in sub hour pace. I would go for straight away into camp, go for an eight mile run with 55 pounds on my back, take the boys out and do that, thrash them, probably about an hour and 15 minute kind of pace, swing in that ballpark, come back in, kit off, go upstairs into the gym, jump on the rower, go row like five, 10,000 meters on the rower, go and do whatever, go and do some paperwork, whatever else I had to do, do a circuit training, weights at lunchtime, deadlift, whatever it may be, and then I'd cycle home sub hour. And I would do this every single day i was a absolute monster because i wanted to be stronger than everybody else all the time and like i would just i hated everybody and i wanted to make people hurt so i would do you think it's because you hated yourself i hate myself and not necessarily hatred towards the person that did this for you oh no i hate i hated that individual i hated him more than anything in the entire world okay at this point i wanted to kill him and then so many times i came close to stabbing him to death do you think that you would see others almost as him or just as yourself? No, it wasn't necessarily that. It was more the fact that I this is how I could prove that I was a bigger man than, than everybody else. <laughs> this is the way I could show that how how much more masculine that I was than they were. Gotcha. And this is how I dealt with it. I, I treat I treat it in a manner that was conduitive con- to me being able to use fitness as a tool to be able to hurt people. So I, I was like, okay, I'm going to show you how much stronger I am. This mm-hmm. is why I went off and did my P company. This is why I went off and did these really, really hard courses. And I, cause I want to be better than everybody. And you, you endured the pain because you were in so much pain. Yeah. hundred percent. And I used the pain to be able to, to control this thing. Not, I'd never beat it because I never did beat it, but I, I, I controlled it through suffering. And so I would, I'd go to races and I would just destroy people like like i'd beat people i'd be be i'd go on cross-country runs and i would beat people like regiments by five ten minutes Mm. on these on these races i was i would just there would be no off switch once it was go time it was go time and i would go absolute like a madman i don't care how much i hurt i would just keep on going there was no off switch and it was just i just I, i just i wanted to hurt people and I want to be better than everybody. And I was I was adamant that this was my way of controlling this thing that tormented me every single day. That, mm-hmm. And that's how I use fitness. And, you know, from running ridiculous fast paces and stuff. And 
I was, I mean, I'm running these paces. I was a big boy. I was still, I was probably at least 200 pounds and I was still running mile and a half in 7.15, 7.10, 7 7.5, like really fast paces. And I just did not care. And I wanted to hurt people. And people and the people had gone off and done their snipers courses, which is a very, very hard course. Mm-hmm. Snipers and, and, and forward air controller courses and all this kind of stuff. And I would take them out and I'm like, all right, game on. I'm going to destroy you. And I would destroy them knowing knowing that I was better than them. And that's how I felt. Even though it probably gave you no satisfaction because no. you kept going no. and kept trying to do more and more. It's kind, of, it's kind of like thinking that you can buy yourself happiness. Mm-hmm. It was the same principle. And, I, and, I, and that's and that's that's kind of how I would control it. And it's like I would get home. Sometimes we'd be sitting around and I was, I'd, I'd get anxious. And I'd just like, I'm going to go for a ride. And I'd go for a night ride. And I'd go off and go and crush like 40 or 50 miles at, at like 11 o'clock at night. So how do you think, you know, when you came home to your wife – yeah. Um, how how was, do, you know, she obviously had no idea what was going on. Not a thing. And, you know, I, ca- I kind of wish I could ask her, you know, what, what was it like for her? Because, I mean, she obviously saw something in you that wasn't quite satisfied. Um, or did she even, that's, that's all she knew of you. Yeah. So... Nobody knew. No, not, yeah. not, not a soul. In, not a soul in this entire world, and barring this individual, me and my wife have talked extensively over this and all the the, the damages and so on and so forth. But it, I, she said that there was always something that wasn't quite right. She goes, "You always knew that I loved her, but there was always something that wasn't. There was there was times when I was really like quiet, and I wouldn't I wouldn't I'd just be in my own little world, distant, yeah. very very distant, mm-hmm. and." It's almost like I I would use sense of humor a mm. tremendous amount to be able to like everybody would know every I mean everybody knows who I am like within our like within our church and our community and so on and so forth like I'm very funny I, I don't mean that's like bragging but like I use sense of humor a lot and I'll make fun of everybody but I use it in a manner I used it in a manner to be able to keep people at distance that I could never get let them get too close and it was also mm-hmm. the the real real good thing for sense of humor it was it was nice to see other people laugh. Because I felt dead inside, mm-hmm. it was nice. It, it was nice to make you know say like a silly or crass joke or whatever it may be, and it was just it was nice to see people just like like naturally laugh. Like just you can see them like belly laughing because they know they're not meant to be laughing at it, and it just it just felt fun. And that was that was something that really took took it away from it. And it, it bringing joy to other people made me happy. Knew that I would never be happy, but it it, it gave me it that. It brought you a little bit of. It gave me a little bit of comfort, and I think that that was that was that was another tool that I used. And then, but I always kept people at bay. I never let anybody get too close to me. So you were, so you became a, an instructor after you got your mm-hmm. what do you beret? <laughs> that beret. Um. So what made you leave? The army. The army, because I mean, obviously, you use that for your anger, and I, I, and I did um, a lot of personal issues, but my my, my one of my biggest reservations that I didn't like the way that conflict was happening. I didn't like the way that we were in certain war zones, and I didn't think that it was appropriate for us to be in these places. Mm. I think the overall message of us, we're going there to stop terrorism, we're going there for this, that, and the other, I don't feel was... I, I think that... I don't think it was 100% correct. I think that it was maybe went off with the the best intentions, but it, it definitely turned away from that. 
And there was other people that had killed themselves and so on and so forth. Like, I think we're a statistic, which I thought was quite interesting, that from not from a from a, from a very bad sense, that we've lost more men and women to suicide than we've lost during the mm. conflict of Afghanistan. And I wow. think that that is just horrific, that these guys and girls have nobody to talk to, or if they, sorry, let me rephrase that. They have nobody that they, they least think that they can talk to because right. they feel as if by them talking about it, then, you know, their guns will be taken away from them. This will happen. There'll be a leper within society, whatever it may, whatever it may be. I guess that's the way that they feel. And for me, I understand, I understand that I understand that position and I understand the battle of depression and, all these really awful things, but I looked at it and I was like, "This." I suppose my dad, my dad was away a lot. Um, my dad was away a lot. This was probably the biggest, biggest driving force. My dad was away a lot when I was in, when I was a kid, and they, I'm sure he did some. I don't know what he did, but well, yeah, what did he do? He did some. He did some pretty cool things. But some of the jobs that I wanted to go off and do was very much like human intelligence and and doing like like SAS, like Secret Air Service and SBS, mm -hmm. Secret Boat Service. I wanted to go off and do the real, real hard stuff. And if I couldn't do that with my with my full potential, I didn't want to do it. And I didn't when I say full potential, I had a wife that was at home. And my my I didn't want to I didn't want to leave my wife at home. I was like, oh, by the way, uh, tomorrow I'm going away for two months. Sorry, I never told you that mm. because I need to go off to this location. Um, and I didn't want to constantly do that. I because that's want, what your dad essentially would do. And 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 he was he was always away and you know that he'd be stouts, he'd be he'd be he'd be on a deployment for a couple of years wherever, and we'd see him once a month. And you know, as a little boy, I just yearned to have my father around and he and he wasn't around. So I was very I was very aware that if I do, if if I do different kinds of, if I do different kinds of these different kinds of jobs, whatever whether I choose to do SAS or whatever, I'm gonna be always be away. And mm -hmm. then my beautiful wifey, who I love more than anything, has moved from her country to here, and I'm being selfish. Mm -hmm. I'm being selfish for my own desires to make sure that I'm I'm happy. And I think that that was the, I think that was one of the biggest driving forces to me not doing that. And it was almost like I don't want to just be a regular soldier. I don't want to just be. I don't want to just do this. I want to. If I'm going to do something, I want to do something spectacular. Mm -hmm. And that was very much my notion. So there was multiple multitude of reasons. There are other reasons, but that those were the primary ones. And then we decided to get out the get out the um, the army, and we went traveling. And me and my beautiful wifey went all the way around Holland and we mm. we then we went down to France and we chased the Tour de France round and we slept on the side of the mountains and we we watched a Tour de France come bombing pie and it was just oh, it was fun. It was incredible. really fun. And we 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 went down, we climbed up like the Tourmalet, which is the highest mm -hmm. mountain pass in the French Pyrenees. We went and climbed up that and just bonkers. And we slept on the side of roads and we just all sorts of wild stuff. And we just it was it was brilliant. It was just it was me. It was me, me and my wife. I was really happy. It was. It was. I was like anxious because at that point we were getting ready to move because we we gone through. Might get my green card. And everything was going. I was going. To, we were going to America after leaving the army. Mm -hmm. So before we did that, we went traveling for three months and we chased the Tour de France round and we we went to all these random castles in the, in the in the French mountains and it was just fantastic. We did these really cool things, 
we had to go back for my green card interview um, at halfway through. So we went back to London for that. And then we went to Holland after that, I think, if that's right. And we 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 went and went to Amsterdam. We went to all these historical sites and we just had just a great time. And just traveled. Just traveled. We just did our stuff. And anyway, we, we went all the way around... Um, we went all the way around. Um, we went and did that, and then we went back to England, and then from England we went to America. And anyway, when we went over to America, we moved to just outside New York, and that's where I became a fitness instructor in New York. And it was once again slightly different relation. Like it was people paying to come, so I couldn't scream at them. <laughs> <laughs> was this at a gym, or did you open so, your own place, or so how I did you at, get this job? I worked at a bunch of different fitness, like higher end fitness studios in New York. Um, and I worked in Manhattan and I worked, I lived in downtown Jersey city, which is just on the other side of the Hudson. And we, we, um, we came, we came down and we worked there and I worked at like a bunch of different studios. But when we first came across, I, I got offered a job at one place and we were living in central Jersey with my mother and father-in-law at the time. And we, I had to leave the house at two forty in the morning to be able to, I had to get up at two fifteen, but I had to be leave the house at two forty in the morning to get to, work because there was only the slow train at that time to get to work for like 5 30 and then i would work from you know 2 30 in the morning till nine o'clock at night oh my and i would just work any hours any hours i could get and i just i, I just took everything yep i'll take it i can do that yep i can do that and it was i had the one of, the, one of my biggest assets was i had my bike and i could get from one spot to another so fast in, in new york so i could finish a class and I'd have 15 minutes to get from 59th and Columbus, which is like the bottom left-hand corner of Central Park, down to 34th between 5th and 6th. Which is, if you know New York, it's, it's a substantial distance between traffic lights and so on and so forth. But I was like, right, game on. And <laughs> and I would just go and crush it. I'd finish class, yeah, 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 I've got to go. I'd hop on my bike and just go. So it's just, you went to many different places on a daily so basis. So I would work a... I, I like to work at like multiple different studios because it kept it interesting. It wasn't just, a, it wasn't death by, it wasn't Groundhog Day. Mm -hmm. And I would just work a couple hours here and eventually I managed to like condense my, my schedule. So I only worked like four days a week. And then, but those four days were pretty busy. And that's kind of like how I did my schedule. And eventually um, we had a, um, so we worked at how many studios. And when I was up there, I used to go off and do a lot of cyclocross racing. Uh, was kind of my thing. Um, and then we did a whole array of different kinds of, you know, um, all sorts of different jobs, different studios and so on and so forth were up there. But we moved, we, and then kind of comes into about a year and a half, two years later, we moved down here. And from here, um, we went off and did, we moved our business down here because we've, we've started a business and it started doing exceptionally well that we didn't need to be in the city and we needed to kind of expand I'll, uh, we need to get a bigger place so we moved down here but really oh so you started your business up in up there New York, and we did okay. it out of a studio apartment and we just we we got after it like we we had an amazon business and the kind of what we did was we go to like big lots and ollies and all these other places and buy like closeouts i like buy stuff on sale bring mm -hmm. them back take the labels off them and then sell them on amazon and mm -hmm. that's kind of how we that's how, that's and that did start doing pretty well for us and then with that we moved down here um because that was our income we didn't have like a normal job and then i suppose going back to like how i dealt with depression and so on and right. so forth was 
eventually I landed in, so the church I go to is Brookstone Church. I'd landed in Brookstone Church and I met a lovely young lady called Lara, who's a good friend, who's a friend of ours and, or a friend of ours now. And at the point she, we just started chatting away and we, I had been invited and then as we were leaving, she was going to, sorry, Rebecca was saying, her little girl went to school with my little boy. So she said, is that Alfie? I was like, yes, yeah, Alfie. And he goes, oh, my little girl goes to school. And we started chatting like that. So we started chatting away and then had a conversation about whatever. And then as we're leaving, there's, there was a gentleman who I bumped into called uh, Jeff Reeser. And Jeff Reeser says to me, he goes, and we started chatting away. And, I, and at this point, my wife had um, been diagnosed with breast cancer. Hmm. And it was... Almost, this was after you moved here. It was after we, so we we lived we'd lived down here for three but three or four years at this point. And we lived down the end of Reams Creek. We moved to we just moved out to Marshall and Ken had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And And how can I stop you there for a yeah. second? But how did she A lump. So okay. she was breast she was breastfeeding our little our little my little boy, Archie, and she had like a little lump on her breast and you could feel it like you feel it but it was it was it was pretty solid and we were like we probably don't need to go and get this checked out it's probably nothing so we wait to her, her next checkup and goes hey also i've got this lump mm -hmm. doctor's like it's probably just dried milk nothing right. nothing to worry about nothing to get anxious about just you know it, there's a good chance it's, probably, it's just dried milk but why don't we just do a biopsy just to make sure how's that sound because like all right fine Great. Mm -hmm. And she's in the middle of breastfeeding. She's in the middle point. of breastfeeding, which is, I might have this statistic wrong, and I probably shouldn't say it, but as far as I'm aware, you're, 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 you're a lot less likely to get breast cancer while you're breastfeeding. Mm. Uh, and I might have that wrong, and I may have maybe remember that information wrong. But I would, as far as I'm aware, that's that was the case. So we didn't think anything of it. So... It, it's getting closer to the appointment and we're getting busy with work. And Ken's like, look, I'm not, we can just skip this appointment. I'm sure everything's going to be absolutely fine. Everything's going to be fine and dandy. Mm. And there's nothing to worry about. I was like, whatever. And then she's like, all right, fine, I'll just do it. I was like, okay, we'll just go do it. So she she went and did this biopsy. And this was during COVID and all that and all the shenanigans mm. of that. And we, I was sat on the back porch and at this point I was building houses and I was speaking to one of my one of my subs and she came around the she, after I answered the phone, she came around the corner and I saw it straight away in her eyes. I, I was like, oh, oh, I don't know what this is. And I was like, go, go, phone down. And then it was like, that was probably one of the I mean my wife seen me cry four times. And that was that 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 was that was what that was one of them. And it was that moment of that realization that my wife, who I love more than anything, had cancer, and I was petrified that I was going to lose her. And the the anger and the depression and everything came back again. And it and boy, almighty, did it come back! And I was just, I want, I went on to like kill mode, and I was just like angry man again. It was like 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 a click of the fingers. There was no control in it. So what did you do? So I mean, what when you say you went? Kind of out of control. <laughs> I was, I was, I was just, I was very, I was very, very angry. Because um, you weren't in the military to be able to. <laughs> no, I didn't get to, I didn't get to hurt. Other people. You didn't get to hurt people. But... Unfortunately, I couldn't hurt anybody at this point. <laughs> so I, I sat there and I, 
I got real quiet and I really got some ahead. And then I started, I was like, this, I said, what have I done in a past, what have I done in the past life for me to, to deserve this? Mm. And I suppose that that was the question. It was like, well, have I, what bad, why am I getting punished? And very much throughout my life, I had always considered that there was no such thing as God. For how could if 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 there was a god, how could he allow this to happen to a child? Mm. And I always I I wrestled with this so many times for various different various different um, various different ways. But I wrestled with it so hard. I was like, "There's no way a god can exist and and allow this to happen, child." And I was, if there was, I was really angry with with God, and I I really had a lot of hatred towards him, and. It was, it was, it was that all that anger came back in. But I think there was something to me that was like this time I was like, I need to, I need to treat this differently. I need to look at this with a little bit more clarity and not just go into like old Jack and or BC Jack before Christ Jack and just go into kill mode mm -hmm. and not to like get angry. I had to be level-headed, and and then I started thinking. I was like, I don't know, and I got I was I was really upset for a really long time, and you know, and obviously it was it was a woman in the love more than anything, and I was petrified that I was going to lose I was going to lose my wife, and she was going to die, and we had two boys at that point, and so randomly I'd gone to that park, and when I got to that park, I bumped into Lara, and mm -hmm. we, we me and Lara with me and me and lovely Miss Lara were chatting away, and and she's just a lovely person, and. She was, she was, um, she was really nice. And as we were leaving, we bumped into a gentleman called Mr. Risa. Mm -hmm. Mr. Risa, who I was unaware of this, was, was, was a pastor. Anyway, he, he started chatting away and he had said, um, he had said that he'd introduced himself and he said, oh, somehow came into conversation about my wife. And when, when we talked about my, when we talked about my, um, I brought about my wife, and I said, "Oh well, she's she's obviously she's in, she's having cancer. She's she's going through cancer right now." And he goes, "My lovely wifey had cancer, and he, she had breast cancer." Mm. And there was something about him knowing what I was going through, gave me a little bit more like clarity. So we we talked for we talked extensively for a really long time, and that was just that one day. Just that one day. Okay. And I was, and and he's like, "Hey." And our church had uh, an event that coming weekend, I want to say it was, where it was a young lady played guitar, like the big music festival, like a small music festival for our church down on the park. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you should come down. Come check it out. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I want to do that. It's like a bunch of churchy folk. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, look, come on down. I was like, how, okay, how about this? I go, I'll think about it. How's that sound? <clears throat> and he goes, okay, you have a think about it. Love to see you here. So I'd come down. And before this, I'd had so many invitations to our church, uh, to where we go, which we go to Brookstone in uh, Weaverville. And I'd had a ton of invitations. And every single time I'd be like, thank you very much, not interested. So even before this, you but were getting invitations? So many. Okay. And, and, it's, and, and I'm not making this up. It was just endless amounts of invitations through some of our subs went to this church and just randomly people and so on and so forth. And I just like, every single time, I was like, no, thank you. This is not really something that I want to do. And I have no desire to do this. So I I had bumped into Mr. Risa and Mr. Risa um sort of obviously invited us down to the park. So we'd gone down to 
that Saturday we'd gone down to this festival. This, this or maybe it was Sunday. And this your whole family went. No, just me. Oh, just you. Just okay. me and Alfie went. Just me and Alfie went. So me and Alfie went, and we went there. And I was like, oh, this is this is actually all right. And this is actually where I went, met Mr. Evan, where I called him fat okay. to his face. <laughs> That's the first time I, I met him. And, you know, it was like everybody was just so welcoming straight away. And I was like, this is a, this is a genuinely really lovely place. And, like, I, as I said, not a church person at this point. This I was like, no, 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 no. So I went there and, 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 and you know, music was great, barbecue, life was good. Like, there's nothing not to like. Probably games for the kids. Games for the kids. Yeah. I was like, this is this is just cool. This is It was a beautiful, warm day. It was, I actually remember it being very hot. But it was a very hot day and it was just, it was brilliant. Anyway, I was leaving again. And as I was getting ready to go, I was like, great, done my church things for the rest of my life. Ticked off. Let's keep on tracking. <laughs> church, check. Done. Done. I bumped into Mr. Reese again. And he goes, oh. so what do you think? I was like, it was all right. It was good. He goes, great. I'll see you on Sunday. I was like, oh, how about that? He's like, come on, come check it out sometime. I was like, I don't know about that. Let me think about it. He's like, well, hopefully we'll see you there. I was like, all right. My friend who lived at the bottom of the mountain for me at the point was a gentleman called Chris McKaitis. Chris McKaitis said, let's go to church. And he me, came, he went he to Brookstone kick, also. He went to Brookstone. He goes to Brookstone <laughs> as well. So he had invited me as well. And I had come in. I was sat way at the back of the, like a friend once referred to it as a backseat Baptist. <laughs> I went sat at the back of the backseat away from everybody. I was like, all right, really suspiciously looking around. But when we first came into the building, it was like, I can't describe it. It walked in and it was just like, I was home and I can't mm. put it in any other way. Like at this point, it was not a God-fearing person. And it was like, uh, I feel like I'm at home. I feel like I've been running away from this so hard that this is this is the place where I, it, it, like, it's almost like somebody put their hand on my shoulder and that's the only way I can describe it. And and I, I can't put it in any other sense that this was something that felt comfortable. It felt relaxing. It felt like this is where I'm meant to be. So then I went to service. And then... Was it just you at this point or did you... I got there before Chris and Chris came in during the music playing and... He came and sat next to us and we, we were chatting away and we were whispering backwards and forwards. And it was just such a wonderful experience. I was just sitting there taking everything in. I was like, this is this is a, this is a pretty cool place. Anyway, at no point did I come to Christ straight away. And I sat there and I was like, I want to know more about this. I mean, I guess I should probably buy a Bible because <laughs> I didn't own a Bible. I think our pastor at the time was like, I think I met him met him, and he's like, have you got a Bible? I was like, yeah, it's somewhere. I was like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have I one. Got one. <laughs> I'm lying in church. Sinner, heathen. <laughs> so he, so I eventually bought myself one. And actually, I remember texting Evan. I was like, well, "What do I buy? <laughs> what, what kind of Bible do I buy?" And sure. he, he talked me for it. I accidentally bought the Granddad version, which is just there's the granddad, the granddad version, which is five words per page. It is just the biggest, the biggest, <laughs> big font, large font. <laughs> extra extra blind font font so i bought that and and then i started reading and i was like let me let me read a little bit more of this and i and i and i read romans acts corinthians and i was like let me read some more of this and i went back to genesis and then and i read every single page every single Mm. book in the bible and i kept on reading backwards and forwards and i was like i want to know more kept coming to church and i was like at that point i was like i will come to church once every other month 
That's all I'm coming to church. I ain't coming any more than that. I've got things to do. Once a month. Once a month. And then once a month happened. And I was like, maybe I'll come once every other week. That's a good dose. And then I get my, still get two weekends off a month. This is great. And then it was every week. <laughs> I was like, how did this happen? <laughs> so then I start coming to church. And eventually, you know, you may not be a church going gentleman or lady who listened to this, but like I felt this urge that I wanted to give my life to Christ. And the only way I can describe it, it was once again, it, instead of one hand on my shoulder, it was like two hands on my shoulder. And I give my life to Christ and praise the Lord that he did. And it was this moment that I can't describe. I can't put it in any other words than, than God was stood right next to me. And it, I felt that this moment that, all the anguish and all the temper and all the pain and suffering I had that I had, sh I was sharing with somebody now and I wasn't on my own anymore. And, and I think that that was such a, such a refreshing thing. And remember this whole time, I still hadn't told my wife what happened to me as being raped as a child. I still, I hadn't, hadn't told my wife that I'd been sexually abused as a child. I hadn't told anybody. There wasn't a single soul in this world that I had told. And, and it felt like at this point that, it felt like at this point that there was somebody else who was stood next to me. It's like, it's okay. I got this. Me and you got this together. We're going to crush this and take care of this. And that's how it felt. And eventually, you know, the Lord had to work some overtime on me. And eventually it was this pressure of, I should probably, you, I feel like this feeling that I needed to tell my wife. And I was like, no, 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 no. Never going to tell my wife. This is, this is something that I had decided that I was going to take to the grave with me. Nobody was going to know this because I wasn't a victim. I never allowed myself to be a victim for one second. I was like, no, it's this this really heinous thing that happened to me as a child is that's my baggage, that's my issue, that's something that I will have to deal with accordingly on my own. And I will deal with it in a manner that is intuitive to the way that I want to. Not anybody else, not the Lord, nobody else. And it just kept on ticking away in the back of my mind and it kept on chipping and it was just, I was like, I need to do something about this. So there was one of my really good friends, who one of the guys that worked out in the basement with me, which was um, Mr. Sullivan. Me and Mr. Sullivan one day gone down to um, Beaver Lake, which is just down the road from us. We dropped the kids, both dropped her, because his little boy goes to school with my little boy at the time as well. So we'd, we, we dropped him off and we went and got him for a walk around the Beaver Lake and we were chatting about this, that and the other. And, and I was like, and I kind of alluded to the fact that something had happened to me as a child and I had a rough childhood and so on and so forth. But we talked about it and we talked about how this relates to like God's goodness and and we we talked about it extensively and it felt like there was zero judgment and I built up this whole time that people were going to judge me and I was I was going to have people looking at me as if I was weak and I was a victim and this that and the other and I never wanted people to do that I wanted to be the, the strong man I wanted to be the protector I wanted to be this that and the other and it wasn't I was like oh it's not that at all He's a genuinely fantastic gentleman who's genuinely caring, and it was and and it was he want he wanted help in every way that he could, and it was I can't describe. It. I was like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like a little bit of judgmentalness. I thought there was going to be something there that he was going to be like, ooh, not for one second. And from there, I went and spoke to our head pastor, which is a gentleman called um, Pastor Jim Dykes, who is just a spectacular gentleman and same thing and you know we i think we 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 met for something whatever it was 
and we were having a coffee and and I was chatting away to him and I was like, I feel like I needed to tell you this. And I told him, you know, me being sexually abused as a child and so on and so forth and the the anguish that I felt and the anger and everything else. And I told him everything. I was like, and, and it was like, like a little bit more burning. But at no one point did any of these two fine gentlemen go, you need to go and tell your wife now. Not for one second. We just talked about it, and we and 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 I said, I, I, I just feel like this pressure, and I need to tell my wife. And he's like, both of them were like, we should pray on it, and we should and we should put this as part of our part, put this part of our like daily prayers that we start thinking about this and ask for like an answer. And I, I sat there for, and I wrestled with it still for another couple of months. And I wrestled, maybe maybe with me, less than a couple of months, maybe six weeks or something, something in that ballpark. And eventually we had a date night, me and my lovely wife and the kids had gone to my mother and father-in-law's and it was, it was me and my, it was, it was me and my wife, uh, we'd cooked dinner or something. And Kay was upstairs and I was downstairs and I was like, I've got to, and I, I built this up. I was like, I need to tell myself. Was, the whole time I was like, I'm going to tell my wife tonight. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this now. And I'm going to take control. And I need to tell my wife. And I I got to a point. Uh, Kelly was upstairs. I was downstairs on the sofa. Kind of where our living room is. We've got like a big L-shaped sofa. And there's an armchair in the far corner in the, in the living room. Kelly came down. I think we were going to go and play a card game or something. And... Kira sat down, we chatting away for a minute. I said, like, I just need to tell you this. And then I, and I just went and told her everything. I was like, and it was like a nuclear bomb had gone off inside her head. And it was, you could just see like, what has just happened to our world? Not in a judgmental manner, but like, and that was one of the few times, the very few times I've ever cried around my wife. Like I'm not, I'm not a very big cuddly bear kind of chap. And, and it was, I told I told her everything, and it was just this moment of both crying over it, and and I told her everything, and and I told her that how I was suicidal and this, and and I told her some of the times that it was just like it felt as if the weight of the world had been taken off my shoulders. It felt like I had been lied to my whole life about how I had to keep this secret. How it was, you know, as I said, like the only way I can put it, this is in a biblical manner and a spiritual manner. That it was spiritual, it was it was it was it was spiritual warfare at the highest, and it was the enemy were trying to control me, get me to kill myself, get me to keep it a secret. Because once they kept me, once they put me, once they put me in the darkness, they could control me, and they could control my mood, they could control my anger, they could control me to the point of taking me to the point of suicide. There's a, it's one of our pastors at our church, and he said this to me, and it's like such a good thing. Satan's flowers grow best in the darkness, and it's like we. When we're isolated, we're on our own, and we allow those thought processes. And and, and you're, I mean, as maybe you'll remember, like as I've been talking the whole time, I said that I won't tell anybody, I won't do this, I won't ever put myself in that position to be a victim, I won't do. This. It was all about me. It was it was the me show, and I I didn't want ever to let anybody. I didn't ever want anybody to see my weaknesses, and I considered that a weakness. I did consider that a weakness. I considered the, this really horrific thing that happened to me as as a, as a as a pitfall and a my undoing, and and it was my fault that it happened. And I and I beat I beat myself up over it. And the moment I told my wife after sixteen years, I'd never tell anybody. I've been with my wife at this point about sixteen years, and I was like, oh my gosh, I feel amazing. Mm. Why didn't? Why why have I why have I kept this thing? 
I felt like my wife is just like completely destroyed, <laughs> completely. And, and it, I don't say that from a joking marriage. That's like I told her something about me that she had no idea about the right. point of suicide, like depression, how I'd been sexually abused and raped as a child, all these horrible things. And she's just like, like melting down. And I'm just like, I could have danced. I felt this sense of relief that I can't describe. And it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was phenomenal. It was, it was, it was wonderful. And it, and it, and it was just like, I, 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 I don't know why I didn't do this. This, this thing, the, you know, as I said before, like, you know, it felt like the enemy was controlling me the whole time. They control everything about me. And this, this ability for, this ability for the, for, for me to allow it to go on as long as it did. But I told her, and she said straight away, goes, you need to tell your mum and dad. I was like, whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> because they didn't know either. They didn't, they didn't know either. And I was like, no, 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 absolutely not, no way. And it was like immediately be feeling all this sense of relief. Like, psh, the walls went straight back up again. Hard huh. my heart, put the walls up, put the barrier on. And I was like, no, no way am I telling them. And it was, a, and it, and, you know, we talked for hours. We, we stayed up late and talked for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And it was just it, it was just Ken wanted like very much my wife. I love my wife to pieces, but she she wants to know everything, <laughs> everything, every detail. I go out grocery shopping. I don't blame her. I, she, I go grocery shopping and she wants to know everything about what happened. <laughs> like I don't details. Know. I don't know. I bumped into something. Well, what what were they doing? <laughs> I don't know. So we 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 stayed and we chatted for a really long period of time. And I told her everything. And I told her how I felt. And I told her about being point of suicidal and all these stuff. And I kind of just. I was just honest. I was, mm-hmm. I was at the first point I'd ever really been like truly honest about who I was as a, as a person. And it was a sense of relief that I can't describe. Like I just, the, there's nothing on this world that I've ever experienced in that manner that made me feel that way. And it was, it, it was like an out of body experience. And mm-hmm. I was like, and that's the only way I can put it. So I told, we, we went through that and she said, obviously you need to tell your parents. And I was like, oh, I want to tell my parents. Oh. And your parents are still in England. My mum and dad still are in England. Okay. So I went, um, I went back. I, I thought about it for a couple of days. I'm like, let me think about it. I said, let me, I was like, whoa, let me, let me not put the walls away. Let me just think about this for a couple of days. I just want to have, I don't want to just do this. So a couple of days later, um, some of you folk, maybe if you don't know that, if you're not familiar with some of the Bible stories, there's one called Jonah and the Whale. Jonah and the whale is Jonah tried to run away from God's plan. Eventually gets swallowed by a fish. And he, uh, because he refuses to do what God uh, wants him to do. Long story short. So I was reading, I was reading my little boy's Bible, opened it up first page and I opened it up and it was straight away was Jonah and the whale. Mm. And it just felt, I was like, I'm running away from what the Lord wants me to do and I need to, to step it up. I need to stop being about me and I need to do what he wants. And I was like, straight away, I was like, all right, I'm going to do this thing. And I randomly bumped into, I'd gone to Mr. Reese's house to drop something off for him. And um, me and him chatting and I told him who what, who the abuser was and all this stuff. And, we, and he's like, I was like, I'm going to go tell him. So I left his house and went home. My, my, my wifey and the boys were out. I want to say they were going to the park or something. I said, like, let me just do this right now. And I rang up my parents. And I told my parents. And it just completely destroyed them. Oh, I bet. 
but I, t- but I was honest. I was like, these things happen, and this was the individual. And I told them who the individual was, and and it just about killed them. And but it was this. Once again, there was another sense of relief. I was mm-hmm. like, I've, I've, you know, and, and it, it, one of the things that my dad referred to as, is, is a. It's it's sharing the burden. It's taking the weight off, and and it was like a burden shared is a lightened burden. And I, th- I think that that was a good way of putting it. And it was just felt felt I need to. And you know, they're obviously still. You know, no, none of us will ever be right after this again. But it, but it, in such a, but there's so much more positiveness to it. Like I say these things, I make myself vulnerable. I talk to you in this manner, and you know, because if I can talk to you about this and I can make myself uncomfortable, there's other folks out there who are dealing with depression. There's other folk who, you know, I'll be, I'll be frank about it, who don't know the Lord and have no, haven't, and this is how I dealt with it. And, and me finding the Lord and me, you know, Jesus Christ as my savior was the very thing that, that gave me comfort and brought me away from the enemy's control. And I, I, I and you might not be a godly person and you, and you might be, I'm willing to read about it or look at it. I wasn't there. I thought God, I, I, I did not, I wasn't a fan of him at that point. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a fanboy. And I, I, I thought that this is, th- there's no way. And it was a complete misconception of what, what it was. And I, it took me to go and do my own reading, it took me to go and put the time in. And I didn't just go in there and stick my hand up and pray to receive Christ. It was months of reading and reading and reading. And I, I can, I can, the more I read, the more, the more, I was like, well, and then how can this evidence not be the truth? How can this not be the case? And it was just, there's, you can't read in that, that amount and not see the, and not see the, the, the reality of who God is. And you, through reading the Bible, and it was just continuously asking questions, not being afraid of asking stupid questions. I'm sure some of the questions I asked were probably just ridiculous, but I I wanted to learn more, and I wanted to learn more, and that's how I found true comfort. And it was doing what the Lord told me to, and not just running away from Him, but going, okay, I'm gonna tackle this very differently. And I and you know, cancer was horrific. It was just watching you looking at the looking looking at the eyes of my wife and seeing like the loneliness and the the suffering that she was dealing with and she was it felt like it was watching somebody that was dying in front of me mm-hmm. and, and and but that very thing was the thing that brought us to christ and it was the very thing that eventually relieved me from the burden and the suffering that that i went through and there's just nothing <sighs> There's nothing else that I can describe other than that cancer was the very thing that brought me to the edge of the cliff and then made me jump off in the leap of faith. Was her cancer. Mm-hmm. And how is she doing now? She is spectacular. <laughs> she is an amazing young lady and she's spectacular. She is cancer-free. Great. Like we, we had double mastectomy, we okay. had chemo, radiation, all the fun stuff. And it was just not very fun, but she is cancer-free and she is kicking but is what she's doing. And it's just, it's, it's, it's such a blessing, but you know, for the whole thing, she was what, and you know, she watched me changing and she watched me changing, getting comfortable. And my wife didn't know Christ for one second. And she was very anti, and I'm going to tell her story a second, but she was, she was not anti, but she was, she was very reserved about 
God, and she'd seen me changing. She'd seen, look, I used to be able to say four naughty words in a three-word sentence without even <laughs> without even battering an eyelid. So that's one of the fruits of me changing, and I've very much changed. I've definitely got so much more gentle and I so much more so much calmer than I than I was. And I'll always be like a bit of a raving lunatic, but <laughs> but in but in a real positive but in a real positive manner that and she's seen me change. But we recently went to. Um, Israel with my um, with our church and at this point my wife still didn't believe in in God and and she'd been coming to church for about two and a half years at this point and she had spent a lot of time like read like asking questions and we'd have like really good conversations about what like we'd go to service and you know same thing again for my wife I'll come once every other month, I'll come once every week. And eventually she came and she sat next to me every single week for two and a half years. But we'd always get in the car and, and we'd talk about it and we'd be like, well, this, what's the point? Like, where was this going with this and that and so on and so forth. And we'd have these really fantastic conversations. And But there was still a level of, I don't believe, but I think that I see that there is merit to what the Bible, where the Bible was coming from. And we sat there and we, and we went on for a very long time. And eventually there was an opportunity to go to Israel with our church. And I signed up knowing that there would probably be another spot for her to sign up. Mm. And I, I gambled. I was like, let me just do Let me just try it. And I prayed on it, prayed on it, prayed on it, prayed on it. And eventually a, our pastor texted me and goes, there's another spot for Kayla. Do you want me to put her name on it? I was like, let's, let's do it. So Kayla unwillingly <laughs> unwillingly agreed to come and she was she was not about it at first i think she was kind of like i don't know if i want to do it. i don't know if it's gonna be a bunch of churchy folk like for two weeks and it's gonna be ugh. anyway so she she came across and the whole time we were going through it and, and the whole time she didn't believe in god at this point and we're we're going through all these most some of the most amazing places and we're seeing all the like where Jesus performed all these miracles and, and did all these wonderful things. We're seeing all the historical sites and we and it's just such a wonderful time. Constant conversations backwards and forwards and it's just really really interesting. And eventually, we it was the last I think it was the last day we've we've been through Israel, been through Jerusalem, we've been to um, Tiberias and we've seen all these just tremendous sites. And one of the last sight, and and very much what I would like to say that my, my wife was was open to it, but was not ready to accept Christ. And I know some of you folk probably listen to this and not churchy folk, and I'm not beating on you for a second, but it's like it was a it from same for me. It took for me to bring the walls down and explore the fact that God might be real and that Jesus Christ is our Savior. It took me for me to allow those walls to come down and explore the fact that who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we're going down to the last place and we're going down this hill and it's and it's during, um, it was during Passover and it, get ready for Passover and it was bonkers. Everybody was all over the place and there was, there was the, the whole, the whole of Jerusalem was just nuts. So as we're going down to the garden tomb, this is the last thing that we're going to do. We're going to go from here, we'll go back to the hotel, grab, no, from here we're going to go to the last restaurant and then go to the airport. So we're going to the garden tomb and we're going down. And I say to her, I say, hey, no pressure. Last thing we're going to do, we're going to see here. Um, and she looks at me, puts a grin across her face and goes, don't worry, there's no pressure. <laughs> and 
was sitting. Was, so uh, this is the tomb where they believe that that Je- is empty. Jesus rose. Th- this is this is this is the tomb that Jesus was put in, and he was ri- and he rose from from this tomb. This okay. is this is the garden tomb, and we went there, and it was just this beautiful place, and it was just this, like just it was just wonderful, and, and we, we we went where you know where Jesus was sacrificed, and went into the garden tomb, and. We're going, th- we're going through it, and we'll go right to the end, and we do communion right at the end. And Kayla the whole time had not wanted to do, you know, in the two and a half years of her coming to church, had not wanted to do communion because she she wasn't with Christ. And our pastor came around one thing, uh, down the outside of it, and he leant across to pass me the, the, the cup. I took the cup, and then Kayla took it. And I looked at Kayla, and she said, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to accept Christ. Like, the, I have this, and, she's, and she, the way that she describes it is, this whole feeling went through her like she's never experienced it ever, and she's like, I, "I've, I've got, I've got no more excuses. The, I've, I've tried everything, and there's, 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 there's nothing. The, the, every, every time I've had an excuse not to accept Christ, there's, there's always been something here, but there's no more. There's, no more excuses. There's, there's no more excuses. I believe that God died and and, and died and came back for us, a hundred percent, and and just." pastor was just he you could see him just like beyond excited it was like like it was like such a beautiful moment and we're both we're all like just ever so slightly just weeping just a little bit and 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 you could see pastor and like mr pastor mr jim dykes never shows like doesn't show that emotion and you could see him working real hard to fight it back and it was just because this is somebody that we've all been praying for this is somebody that we we've all seen her go through her struggles of breast cancer and seen her learning like the desire to know more and really putting the effort in and somebody that really uh, the whole church came around my, my lovely wife and really put the emphasis on it was a church that brought her to christ this is yeah and it's her journey and it's her journey and it was just beautiful and we and we we went through everything we got to the garden tomb during the communion and it's her accepting Christ. Jim goes back to the front, and he and he 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 gives a prayer for salvation. Kayla does it, and she's like just uncontrollably crying. And it's just this moment that is just it, it's spectacular. And there's there's no thing else. And she's like, I this whole feeling went through my whole body, and there's nothing else that I can describe as that this was the Holy Spirit. And there's and it wasn't some oh I prayed I put my arm up and I I pray for salvation and just because. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but she she went to church for two and a half years. She went to Israel. She saw the sites. Her her faith is based on archaeological sites. It's based on the, the the evidence. It's not just there. And her coming to Christ in that manner was just such a spectacular moment. And it was just you can't describe it in any other way. And it, and just seeing her come into faith and, and and through all the struggles that she had. And I go back to the fact of. We have to be allow our hearts to soften. We have to allow my hearts to soften for me to tell my wife. We had to we had to allow those walls to come down to be really honest and really explore the fact of who God was. And I know I've been talking about God a lot, but Jesus Christ is the only way, the only reason that I'm alive. He was the reason that I locked eyes with that conductor that stopped me from jumping in front of the train. He was the reason that when I put that gun to the side, when I put guns to the side of the head and I took the the, the slack out of the trigger to go and blow my brains out, he's the reason that I stopped. There was always something stopping me from doing it. And I came so close on so many other times from driving off cliffs to just holding on to hand grenades when I was in the army to like killing myself. I just, I, I was, I hated life. I hated everything about it. But God and Jesus Christ 
was was the only thing that that really brought me out of the pits of hell and and and, and there's nothing else I can describe from that but it but it took for me and it took for my wife for us to really put the work in to go and explore the fact it wasn't one and done it didn't just go to church and and that was it it was it was something that I had to put time and effort in to and the willingness to want to learn and that's and that's how I came to Christ and and that's how my wife did and it was some of the best it was some of the best things that we've we've that I ever did and it, and it was a realization that I'm not in control that mm-hmm. somebody else's and it's not about me and it's not about the things that I want to do and you realize that all the things that you told yourself are lies. Yeah, 100%. And to see you so free. Always fantastic. And just to be able to sit here honestly and talk to you about it. And, yeah. you know, I know that we were on a run together and yeah. you kind of brought up a few things. I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, that you've never brought up before. And yeah. I think you've shown the importance of talking about it. Yeah. Like we as men, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that women, this isn't women as well, but I... I Last time I checked, the only way I know is this from a man's perspective <laughs> is, is that we as men can be very prideful and we can be very afraid of showing our emotions. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time what we do is we keep our wives at bay because we're afraid of what our wives will think because we want to be the protectors. We want to be the masculine men and we want to be the strong ones. So, but that also makes us vulnerable and it, it makes us weak because ultimately we isolate ourselves and we remove ourselves from being able to we remove ourselves from the ability for us to be able to have conversations and have honest conversations. And it took a very long time for me to grow up and get maturity for me to be able to understand that if I'm unhappy and I'm depressed in that sense, that I need to talk to somebody. And mm-hmm. I spoke, went and spoke to, and, and for me, it was me speaking to my wife. And to say that I'm a free man would be an understatement. It would like the, the freedom that this has given me and the way that it's changed my life and, the, and for my for my wife as well and it's, it's it's positive it's better for my children it's everything and it's just but it took it took a genuine desire for me to want to change and for me to learn so and i'm sure it's a daily but i mean it's still a daily battle for you right with not, something not, is it or not not as much okay and it and and it's and it's you know there'll always be there'll always be but it took for me to forgive the individual that did it to me. Mm, that's, and that that's was, huge. And that was, because that was part of my anger. My part of the anger was, or a huge, say part, a huge part of the anger was because of this individual, what he did to me. And I, you, I used that as, as my reason for me being angry. And I allowed that to control me because it was the hatred towards him. Mm. I had to give up that hatred and that anger and let the Lord, guy i had to i had to give forgiveness to him and i had to i've forgiven him this individual i feel no hatred towards him when do you think that you came to that realization of when that i realized that that was the thing that was controlling me okay when i realized that 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 very thing was the thing that controlled my anger controlled everything about me and it took for me to that i need to not i'm not the one in control so it kind of goes back to like the lord will deal with him accordingly Mm. It's not for me that I'm not the I'm not the judge, the jury, or the executioner. It's not my job. That's not for me to do. It's just it's just not for me to do. And I live a happy life knowing that he's not controlling me anymore. Like the, like that in that particular individual that abused me, it, it doesn't control me anymore. I'm a free man. Mm. I feel no hatred towards him for one second. It, it doesn't. It, no, I'm a, I'm a happy free man, and it, and and to say that. I don't. I don't necessarily deal with anything anymore. 
you know, occasionally like a couple of thoughts come into my mind, like this, that, and the other. But to say that, to say that I'm controlled by him, no, it's the biggest, no. biggest load of twobble. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm a complete free man because of, of coming to Christ and, and being honest with who I am and me speaking to my wife mm-hmm. and being like, and my, and my parents and, and speaking to them and being saying, this is the thing that happened. And this thing that I, I, I didn't never allowed anybody to come in, come into my life. And being able to allow those walls to come down. So I, I would argue that we as men, from man's perspective, are too quick at putting our walls up and not allowing our wives or our mothers or whoever in, into our lives and to being able to to, like, to show our vulnerabilities. And I say these things and I talk about these really personal, uncomfortable things because by me doing this thing, it will show you that there is a, there's a path to, to freedom and there's a path to you changing your life for something for something so much better that you don't have to feel the anger. You don't try to have to fill it with voids of materialistic nonsense and so on and so forth because I've tried everything. Like we've got pretty, we've got relatively successful businesses and I've tried filling it with with nonsense and it just, it, it there's never, there's it's, it's a Band-Aid for a, for a dam and it will never, it will never work. And it's, you know, it's, it, it has been throughout history mm. that we try and buy our way out of stuff and it doesn't do anything. It's just a waste of time. Well, I can't thank you enough for being vulnerable. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know where this conversation would go today, but yeah. I so appreciate you being so honest and open. And, you know, if I'd asked you to do this several months ago, no. this would not be the same conversation. So, because um, this has all happened very recently in terms of you. Last six talk- months. Yeah, last six months. Last six months. I, I, I've managed to be able to tell my wife and it just as I said before, like it's just a freedom of doing it and, and regardless of whatever it may be. But like I would argue I would argue the fact that if you are having suicidal thoughts or there's something really going on in the world, don't sit there and hold on to it. You don't you don't have to take this struggle on your own. You can talk there's so many people to talk to where it's a suicide hotline, like your parents, your 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 wives, whatever it may be. You you know, your husbands don't don't sit I keep saying it referring to his wives, but you know, there's young ladies on here who I'm sure deal with the same things of bouts of depression. It's like we have to not allow this thing to control us as individuals, but we have to be able to sit there and go, I need to, I need to talk about this. And, that, and that there needs to be a change in our life, whatever it may be, and it needs to be able to be something that we can use for positiveness and not not allow it to control us and bring us down to the pits of hell. Well, and I usually end the podcast by asking for advice and a verse. And you've this, I think this whole I mean, at least the last half of this conversation has been just advice in itself. Yes. And it looks like he's, so Jack's pulling out his Bible, so he must I'm, have something to, to say. So I've got two, I've got two, two things. Okay. So one of the things that we, so we always say, we always have in the basement and it's, it's more of like a, like a, like a, like a fun thing is sometimes, sometimes you're the, sometimes you're the hammer in life and sometimes you're the nail. Don't be the nail, regardless of how hard it is. Just keep tr- keep trucking away. <laughs> and that's you know, I've got on a couple of pieces of equipment. Like um, we have the Jacob's ladder in our basement. It says "Don't be the nail" on it, and it's really inspiring when you're sweating and you're dying. You're like, ah, this thing. <laughs> so we have we have that. Um, but the piece, like for, for me, one of the most important pieces of scripture, which really holds true, is even though that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me, and that's Proverbs twenty uh, twenty three four, and it's for me. It's 
we may go through hard times, whether that's cancer, abuse of any description, even after knowing the Lord or even before knowing the Lord. But God is with you the whole time. The God was stood with me on those train tracks. God was with me for every single day of chemo and Kayla. And he was always with us, but he is with us through the valley of shadow of death. And we don't let that thought ever leave your mind that that you're alone because you're not. If you are depressed, speak to somebody. Come to, come to Christ. Like whatever it is, we need we need to. Christ is the, the genuinely the answer that will bring you true comfort. But that takes for you to, for for you to go out, and put the effort, and go and, to go and explore that fact. And what was that verse again? That's Proverbs twenty three four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. I thought that is that Proverbs or Psalms? Sorry, Psalms. I apologize. Okay, that's why I was like, Sorry. I think uh, Psalms. Okay. I apologize. Psalm, Psalm, Psalms twenty three four. Okay, I'm, I'm, I, I, and I can I'm, put that in the show notes too. Is there um, any way that people can follow you, contact you, um, that I can? About the only thing that I have in terms <laughs> no social of, media. <laughs> I have very, very little social. But you have Strava. Media. I have Strava. Like if if you go on to, if you go into Strava, you can put in Jack Kitching, and you'll see all the shenanigans I get up to. Uh, I work out quite a lot. Yes. I but think. not as not in anger anymore. No, not in, not in anger. Just because it's fun. Right, you're actually enjoying it now. I, I I genuinely enjoy fitness now, and it's not it's not something that I dread and I do the control. I just it's I don't know. Working out is fun. Everybody should enjoy it. Well, I will I will put down your Strava also, <laughs> so people can find you there. But thank you again so much for for being with me today. Well, thank you very much for having me, my lovely. Thank you for listening to Facing Vert. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, and share with your friends. You can also find us on Instagram at Facing Vert. If you'd like to reach out to me, message me there. I hope to see you at the top of the mountain.